0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's time for the DC Spotlight for the week of July 6, twenty twenty-one. Tons of books this week. Tons, uh, tons. So many, so many books. It frustrates me a little bit because last week we only had four, although they were super long. Uh, and then this week they dump uh, so many books on us. I'm fondly remembering those days when people were talking about the demise. DC is only putting out six books. They're they're going to stop making print comics. Clearly not. Look at all these books this week. So uh, we should probably dive right in. Uh, and with so many books, I, I almost don't even give like, you know, usually we talk about our overall feel for the week. I don't even know that I, I can't. There's so many books I don't even know that I can give an overall because some are great and some aren't, and it's just it's kind of yeah. all over the place. So It,
1: it is. It's, it's kind of hard to process it all at once. Maybe I think we'll get maybe a better idea once we start talking about it and we'll get our, collect our thoughts a little bit but uh yeah so let's uh let's kick it
0: off with um i i guess crime syndicate number five uh which I thought was i don't know it, it wasn't one of my my favorites this this series has been a little inconsistent for me, uh, but there's a lot of good here uh I'm just not sure i'm I'm getting it and and you see and throughout the series really, you've seen to have a better pulse on what. Uh, writer Andy Schmidt is is trying to do. We're going to have Andy on um, soon to to talk about the the series and that might help me as well. But uh, we'll start there. Uh, Issue number five, it's written by Andy Schmidt. The pencils are by Kieran McCown, inks by Dexter Vines, colors by Steve Olaf, letters by Rob Lee. And then uh, there is a backup feature which has the origin of Johnny Quick that's written by Andy Schmidt. Brian Hitch is the artist for that with Alex Sinclair on colors and Rob Lee on letters. So,
1: um, a lot of action
0: in this issue. What did you think, Rocky?
1: Man, I, uh, I, I actually quite enjoyed this. I actually think this is arguably maybe one of my, the more enjoyable issues so far. I'm finally starting to get a handle, I think, on, on the world that Andy Schmidt is building because early on I, ha- I had a bias in favor of preferring sort of like the Grant Morrison take. Of the crime syndicate uh, from that classic Earth Two hardcover that Morrison did back—God, uh, this got to be 20 years ago or a long time ago, anyway. But I'm starting to get a feel for it here, and it's clear that Andy Schmidt is—he's really building in—in—in in, in short order here. I mean, this is only the. Fifth issue out of six. He's really building, uh, very much building a world here. And this is a, this is world building. And we get, we get to see the Legion of Justice in this issue, as is right on this, uh, uh, you know, gorgeous cover, the, the Legion of Justice. And, uh, basically, we left off last issue where essentially Owlman, and uh, Donna Troy, Superwoman, are trying to recruit Ultraman to their cause because there's sort of like a metahuman war going on or a metahuman civil war uh, with with uh, Lex Luthor trying to recruit as many metahumans to his uh, cause of justice versus Ultraman or, or versus Owlman and, and the uh, crime syndicate who are trying to recruit as many to their cause. And this is quite uh, a, a lot is at stake here. And uh, I got to tell you, a lot happens here. Uh, I mean, I gotta give, on the one hand, I give Andy Schmidt a lot of credit, writer Andy Schmidt a lot of credit because he crams a lot of story in here and a lot happens. I mean, we get uh, very interesting takes on Harley Quinn, who is actually Red Hood. We get, uh, the tower titan instead of uh instead of uh uh oh man instead of wonder woman's old villain there uh she's known as the tower titan and then we get we get all these different takes on these different characters uh which are very interesting very intriguing because we have ultraman and owl man and superwoman essentially attacking the, the i guess you could call the legion of justice satellite and we were wondering last issue of what Emerald Knight's uh, allegiances were, because Ele- Emerald Knight had joined the Legion of Justice, he is, he still appears to be fighting on the on the w- with the Legion of Justice alongside Sinestro, and and in this issue, it's it's interesting that a, a member of the crime syndicates uh, apparently dies, and it, it looks like Johnny Quick at one point actually kills Johnny, or it looks like Emerald Knight ends up killing Johnny Quick, and and also taking out Atomica. But yet, I, thought, I still think that's misdirection. I still think that there's something else uh, amiss here, something else at play. But I'm, I'm really enjoying the interaction. I'm asking the right questions. And even though a lot's happening, and I'll be interested to hear your viewpoint on this, Jace. I, I, even though a lot's happening, I'm actually intrigued by this. I like the fact that we're sort of thrown in the thick of things. And we're meeting all these he, uh, so-called heroes slash characters were accustomed to being villains suddenly they're on the side of justice and I like this metahuman war there's a lot at stake there's a there's a lot there's a lot of action going on I love the rapport between Ultraman and Donna Troy you know Donna Troy you know thinks Ultraman is kind of an idiot and Ultraman is just Hoping to have, to have some intimacy with uh, Donna Troy because she wants to have a child and she's not impressed with Ultraman's intelligence, but she, she likes, you can, you can, you can already see the rumblings of maybe some of uh, her attraction potentially to Owlman because Owlman is clearly the brains of the operation. Uh, you get to see Johnny Quick's background here in the backup and also the fact that Johnny Quick took out his own parents and you can tell he's definitely psychologically screwed up. You can really see why how the Crime Syndicate is the worst of the worst in terms of the the, the criminals on Earth, Earth Three, and and it's I really like this. Now, this does over this does there is some overlap with Crime Syndicate and Issue Five of Suicide Squad, which is a very interesting overlap, and we'll get to that when we talk about Suicide Squad. But I really like the world building that Andy Schmidt has done here, and. The, the action sequences and who dies and who gets injured and and the Ultraman versus Rat, oh, Vandal Savage. So much happens, man. I just don't want to ruin it. Uh, I, I love the, there, there's a great, what I've used, some of these two-page spreads are just fantastic. And just this, this all-out battle sequence. This is the stuff that I actually want to read in the pages of Justice League. This is action-packed stuff here. I'm really enjoying this. This is just plain fun, fun, fun. And I love the the last-minute appearance at the end. Ultraman uh, is about to take out Lex Luthor. Only he is stopped by this Earth 3's version of Kara Zor-El. And wow. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what the future holds here. This issue was is called Swift Vengeance. And uh, yeah, man. I'm, I'm really curious to know what you thought of this, Chase. Yeah, I think it's still not really resonating
0: for me. And, and I had talked previously after the first couple issues of, of really looking forward to meeting Alexander Luther and hoping that he would be kind of a touchstone character for me because he was the, the classic version is so heroic, and and that's kind of my always been my gateway into the the Crime Syndicate world because I, I have been a fan of Earth Three and these characters in, in the past. You know, it's it, it's kind of tropey now, but when you take these heroes and we get the evil versions. Like I said, it's tropey now it's been done a thousand times, but back when they were first created, it, it hadn't, but it was a little more fresh. Um, and the problem is here that, and we know that this was an, you know, an editorial directive for Andy Schmidt that, Hey, this is a new version of, of these characters. This is a new version of the, of the crime syndicate. It's not the one that, you know, so without the nostalgia to pull me in, I felt like, okay, I need a, I, I need a, a good Alexander, a, a very heroic, um, alexander luther that i can that i can invest in a character that i can care about where that'll be my kind of gateway into the story um the problem is the luther the alexander luther that we're getting is not really resonating with me he doesn't necessarily seem that heroic um you know not that he's a villain by any by any means but he also hasn't seemed very capable (laughs) so far uh he here he gets tricked into bringing owlbots aboard the um the satellite, the the Legion of Justice satellite, and and that compromises their defense, and they end up, you know, invaded by by the the crime syndicate. So I, I'm still struggling to find my way into the story, and uh, the action is there, and it's certainly interesting seeing these different versions, like you mentioned of of Harley Quinn, who's Red Hood, of uh, Vandal Savage, who uh, ha, you know has a different name and and has some some. Uh, technology from Apocalypse, which is uh, very interesting to me. Um, so there are interesting characters here, um, you know, a different version of Giganta and and all that. Um, <laughs> H- how Lonar, the, the version of, of Vandal Sandwich got this uh, Apocalypse technology, you know, we don't know. He rides on a, a metal like robotic horse I I mean they they're just cool it's 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 cool to see these kind of different versions but I'm still struggling to find my my way in I to my knowledge and I again I could be wrong uh there hasn't been an Earth 3 version of of Kara Zarell, of, of Supergirl so yeah. she's got the same emblem she's got that Ultraman emblem um so does that mean she'll be a villain will she be a hero I mean we, my guess is she's going to be a villain so it is fun and it is over the top. I I just wonder if it's going to resonate with people because I, you got to care about the characters first. And I, and that, that's my problem. Although the characters are interesting, I haven't found a way to to care about these characters yet. Um, And so that's, that's been my struggle as far as the, the backup story with Johnny quick, it's pretty much sort of what I expected. I I think I said it in the first issue is what is this like a a hillbilly or a white trash version of of Johnny quick? (laughs) yeah, we see this this origin, and that's exactly what it is. Um and again, that's just not something that's going to interest me. Uh, I mean, it's it's fine. He obviously underwent a lot of abuse at the hands of his older brothers and his father uh, and, and a lot of trauma, and it explains why he's so depraved and has killed so many people. But again, that's kind of tropey too. Um, if anything, the most interesting character is Owl man which, you know, do we really need another version of Batman? But that he is the most interesting. Um, the Ultraman here doesn't seem to be particularly smart. Uh, the Superwoman is different, uh, a little more psychopathic, I guess you'd say. But he, I guess you could make that argument for all of the, the characters. Atomica, uh, she does survive the uh, – not that it was an attempt by Emerald Knight to kill her and – Johnny quick. It was a little bit inadvertent, but she does survive it. We see her sitting on a little uh, like a little, either a uh, sheaf of weed or blade of grass or a weed or something there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't actually, I I think it is misdirection. I think you mentioned as well. I don't think Johnny quick's really dead. I think he'll, he'll heal from whatever was done to him. So yeah, there's a lot of good ideas, but it it feels more plot driven than character driven. And maybe it needs to be because we don't know these characters, but that's kind of the problem. So to tell such a big story with these characters, and I don't know what the solution would have been um, to kind of introduce these this version of the crime syndicate and get us let us know the characters. Be introduced. It's
1: unfortunate there's only six issues. If you had more time, but you know, I like the fact that it's. I'm asking. I just love it's just very intriguing. I love the head, the head cannon that it inspires in me, you know, in terms of like, I imagine what the origins might be. And even the fact that there's the jester and the jester is supposed is is earth three's Joker. And, and Red Hood, Harley Quinn wants to take out Ultraman uh, or wants to take out Owlman as revenge uh, for what he did to Jester. And she says Jester's still alive. And but but Owlman thinks Jester's dead. And we don't even know who the Jester is. And we got these editorial notes referring to comic books we'll never read because they only existed in Earth 3. And so I think Andy Schmidt is having fun here. And if you really, uh, you know, I think if you really allow yourself to get delved into this uh, series, I think there is some some fun and some imagination to be had. And uh, I this this thing is, can only Grow the mythology, so we at least have that.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Um, and I do wonder about yeah, if this could have been more of a slow build, um, and more of you know, start off with sort of character pieces. And and he is doing his best, right? Because a a lot of the each issue so far has has sort of spotlighted one character of the crime syndicate or another, especially in the backups. Um, but yeah, I think just a little more a little more room, maybe a, a 12 issue. But you know the market just won't bear that right now. To right. be honest with you, so but, it's a it's a struggle.
1: Uh, I am going to throw in here because we are going to be reviewing Suicide Squad number five. In Suicide Squad number five, I, I, it's been revealed that uh, you know Amanda Waller is spying on all all of the Earths of the multiverse, and Earth three is one of them. And she's got Bloodsport spying on what's going on in earth three and that leads to an altercation and an interaction with Ultraman in the pages of suicide number five that we will be reviewing. And so this, this, there is some expansion of the earth three mythology that I think has taken uh, place in the pages of suicide squad that I think is quite intriguing as well as we'll get to.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately all the suicide squad issue did was remind me of future state suicide squad, which I didn't (laughs) particularly like, but we might as well t- we might as well jump into it. I mean it's it's titled Earth Three Part One, uh, from writer Robbie Thompson, Dexter Soy, Eduardo Panseca, Julio Ferreira, and Joe Prado are listed as artists. Alex Sinclair does the colors and Wes Abbott does the letters. Uh and it is Earth Three Part One. And we do get kind of a newer, updated version of, of Bloodsport, um, which I guess, you know, with the Suicide Squad movie coming up, it's not a big surprise. Uh, but at least we do get a little bit of a flashback for his origin and his old his old look, how he looked originally, which wasn't much of a costume. He just had this red bandana, like covering half his face with the, you know, tied in the back with these long trailing uh, pieces of, of red cloth and then a camo pants, a black tank top and a giant gun, basically. And he took on Superman. Uh, he'll be played by, I think, Idris Elba in the, the Suicide Squad movie that's coming up from James Gunn. So, again, not, not a surprise that he plays a role here. Uh, But yeah, we find out that he's basically been sent out by Amanda Waller to recruit all across the multiverse. Um, I'm going to kind of leave it alone and not break it down too much to talk about the fact that this is really some power creep for Amanda Waller that all of a sudden she has technology where she can send somebody hopping across the multiverse. um, And I don't like it. And I'm going to leave it there and I'm not going to analyze it more because anybody who's listening to this podcast knows I don't like Amanda Waller. And I, I think <laughs> leveling, leveling her up like that is, I, I, I don't like, and I think it better would have been suited to bring in another character to do that. Um, I do like the look of, uh, of Bloodsport, um, his, his helmet, which is like half skull, half, um, I don't know, just devoid of any sort of features. So he does look a lot more menacing. Um, other than that, it's 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 kind of interesting. There's not actually a whole lot of of plot development. It's kind of a, a one note issue. We just it's narrated by Bloodsport. And he's just talking about the fact that he's been sent out to to recruit. Other than that, we hear that Amanda kind of cracked down on all the members of the Suicide Squad that were left back on are uh, that are in our multiverse because of what happened when them let, letting Red X escape, which we saw last issue. And she found out that they were, you know, talking behind her back. And now they've scanned every inch of the prison and nobody's going to be able to talk without Amanda Waller hearing it anymore. We know Rick Flagg escaped somehow. Um, And we get a little motivation for why Bloodsport allows himself to be sent around the multiverse to recruit for Amanda. You know, she's promised that eventually if he recruits enough people that he'll be freed and he knows that she's lying through her teeth. Well, first of all, if Amanda Waller's lips are moving, you know she's lying. Uh, second of all, he doesn't really care because he always takes advantage of going to these different Earths to revisit his uh, his brother who died, uh, Mickey, who is the whole reason he became Bloodsport. Um, and so that's kind of his, his personal motivation behind doing it. But yeah, we, we do get some of Earth 3 here. We get some context. We see some events that happen in the Earth 3 miniseries that are referenced here. So all that still works really well. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, it reminds me that, hey, uh, the Earth 3 or, – or the Future State Earth 3 Suicide Squad storyline still took place and we're still marching toward it, which a lot of these books are, and I've said it a bunch in these DC spotlights. I I hope we're going to veer away from that. Um, but this is a well-paced issue. Uh, Robbie Thompson is, is giving us a really cool and fresh Suicide Squad story. Uh, Peacemaker is kind of uh, – he's the first member of my uh amanda waller hate club because uh, he appears to despise her just as much as as i do and <laughs> uh, he just uses her as a means to an end so glad to have peacemaker on my side and uh amanda waller kind of puts him in his place when he speaks out against her in typical amanda waller fashion uh you know she's using a a bazooka when a, a fly swatter would do um so that's that's pretty interesting and and at the end of the day when blood when bloodsport calls in for the big gun when he's uh facing off against Ultraman thinking okay the big gun being a kryptonite gun and that would work against just about every <laughs> superman in the multiverse but obviously not here we know that um it's sort of backwards uh, Ultraman craves kryptonite the way a, a junkie craves their their next fix and it actually powers him up so uh, how this will play out over, and I think this is supposed to be a three issue arc, uh, how it's all going to play out um, and and what ideas Amanda Waller gets in this arc and and how that leads into the future state will be interesting to see. And and like I said, hopefully we'll avoid it. So it's despite the fact that it's a, a Amanda Waller, I mean, it's a Suicide Squad book. I got to expect some Amanda Waller, a character that I don't care for. Robbie Thompson has been doing a really great job. And this is interesting, and and Rocky's right. It it can build off of what uh, Andy Schmidt is doing in the pages of Crime Syndicate. So, uh, what did you think, Rocky?
1: I got to tell you, I absolutely love how this builds up the potential for Suicide Squad as being an even more interesting story because we all know the story of, we all know the general plot line of any Suicide Squad story arc. It's Amanda Waller putting bombs in the heads of various heroes and villains to control what they do. I like the fact that the playing field is now the entire multiverse. She now has spies like Bloodsport that can go and literally recruit. She has the entire multiverse to recruit potential members for the Suicide Squad. And I think that is really, really cool. Because one of the things that DC has always... One of the weaknesses of the DC uh, universe in general is that it's failed... Miserably, in the last twenty years, to take advantage of the rich char- uh the rich characters available in the fifty-two Earths of the multiverse, or in this case, the larger, uh, even larger omniverse. And this is a great comic book now to potentially allow. Uh, so we have at least one comic that will let us do that. So I really like that. I particularly like the uh, uh, B- Bloodsport is a really great character here. We got some fairly decent character work here. And uh there's a minor little continuity glitch and that minor continuity glitch is that at the time that Bloodsport uh, encounters Ultraman he he could not possibly have known they were called the Crime Syndicate because they weren't formally a team yet. Uh because if you if you actually look at the timing it was just after the Starro thing they weren't known I don't I don't even think they were known as the Crime Syndicate. They're still right in the middle of a civil war with uh, Lex Luthor and that hasn't even played itself out yet. But that's a minor nitpick. Uh overall I'm really am- I really like the character work here. Writer Robbie Thompson is is impress impresses me. Dexter Soy, I know it's him and some other artists. Really good job. I like I like the inclusion of Black Siren. I I know fans of. I'm not a big fan of the CW Arrow series, but it's nice to get a callback of some of some uh, characters from the CW show that might bring in some new readers. I, I think that there's a there's a lot of potential here. It was a laugh out loud moment for me where Bloodsport thought that Kryptonite would would have an impact on Ultraman. It's also interesting that we're wondering what impact that 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 the that death metal had on the memories of various characters. I actually think that with uh, I, I'm surprised Amanda Waller is not familiar with Ultraman. You know, you know, because I I would have thought that she she was a little bit more familiar with the with the workings of the multiverse prior to death metal. But maybe she mm-hmm. was, and maybe she doesn't remember it. I don't know. But it is interesting that uh, you know more and more of the. In this multiverse. Everybody knows there's a multiverse now in this in this infinite frontier, and it's really interesting in terms of where things are headed. I'm having a blast with this. We know that Amanda. We know that Amanda Waller is so, is slowly going to be working toward uh, stationing, uh, creating a Superman for Earth three with Connor Kent, and this is the machinations of that, the early early rise of that. Which, as you said, we know that from from future state and unfortunately because we know that it might take away a little bit from the story but it's still a pretty fun story in the reading of it for me so i had a lot of fun with this issue man i I just this is this is fun this is what i want to read dc i want more of this type of story myself
0: yeah i wonder you know you talk about being able to with amanda waller whether you agree with the 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 level up in her her power and her her pool of people to pull from because I agree, I love the multiverse of DC. I love how there's all these crazy characters from different places. It'd be great to see them show up in the pages of Suicide Squad. But for me, having them show up just to be cannon fodder and killed off—like eh, you know—I I have mixed feelings about that. It would be great to see some of these characters that we don't usually get to see, but not if they're just going to show up to get killed off. So I don't know. I guess we'll. Uh, I guess we'll see. A,
1: a double-edged sword, yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, let's talk about Swamp Thing next because this sort of has a Suicide Squad tie-in as well because uh, I guess DC just hates me. They want to give me as much Amanda Waller as they can. So uh, suicide, or, uh, Swamp Thing, rather, number five. Uh, Rom V is the writer. John McRae is the guest artist for this issue. Mike Spicer on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, Survivor Bomb. Uh, pretty interesting one of issue. Uh, kick us off, Rocky. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I'm just. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I first I got to. I think this is the first issue. Uh, the first four issues, uh, I was very very impressed. This is the first issue where I had to read this about uh, about three or four times to really get a handle on it. I, I mean the the idea. You recall in the first issue when we were introduced to the Pale Rider, I, I was really impressed with how Ram V sort of created the theme, the idea that these these were bad ideas. And and the pale pardon me, the pale wanderer, not the pale rider, so apologies to Clean Eastwood. Uh but the Pale <laughs> Wanderer talked about uh these you know, a a bad idea, you know, bad ideas tend to linger. And Ram V really builds on that. And the premise of this, it stars this stars Constantine and and I don't know a lot about Constantine lore, but uh, one of fr- the friends of Constantine, the Sierra uh, woman, her she ends up c- creating some sort of, I guess, potion for her friend Nigel, and he takes it. And he they're in London, and unfortunately, they're near an unexploded bomb, uh, uh, Nazi bomb from World War II. And this this Nazi bomb, there's a lot of metaphor in this story. This Nazi bomb embodies the bad idea of fascism and Nazism and and that attracts the green that attracts Levi Kamai the, the green and and they it's 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 really about you know it's called survivor bomb and it's really about uh you know what do you do with bad ideas you know is is humanity doomed to keep repeating past mistakes of embracing bad ideas like nazism i think there's a lot of i think ram v has something to say with this story it didn't quite translate as well as I would have liked for me. I thought it was, I thought this was a messy tale. And I think that messiness was reinforced by artist, John McCree, who, by the way, nine times out of 10, I love John McCree's art. Um, I'm I'm not sure to what extent it, it really works for me here. I may have, I think I would have, I, I missed uh, Mike Perkins, uh, art if I, if I'm brutally honest, but Mike Perkins did do, uh, the, the cover along with Mike Spicer and, uh, overall here i I thought this was uh this was interesting. I liked the attempt i I was going to give ram v credit because he's not afraid of really delving into some 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 important themes and he's not afraid to delve into some 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 deep writing and he always has something to say i i I think that he wasn't quite as successful as I would have hoped in this particular issue uh and i didn't even quite understand what Swamp thing did at the end was he working? Was it all in in his mind, or he somehow seemed to it, he he took this bomb that was going to explode because apparently this bomb it was such a powerful bad idea of Nazism that it, it could possibly explode because of this. I I didn't quite understand it. I I I have to admit, <laughs> but I, I could kind of see where he was going for thematically, but and but this was I thought this was an unnecessary detour. From the cliffhanger in issue four, where, where we were getting the Suicide Squad involved and Amanda Waller was going to get involved, and I think this was kind of a little bit of a. It sort of took me out of that of where I saw the story going, and this seemed to be a dist- an unnecessary distraction. It was the same theme of dealing with a bad idea, but an unnecessary one, and it sort of it sort of took me out uh, of the story uh, of of the first four issues a, a, a little bit, and uh, but but still, it's it is linked thematically to the first issue, but this was a little bit of a little bit of a disappointment for me, but I still enjoyed it. But uh, what do you think? Good idea or bad idea, Jace to pick this up? Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I've
0: talked about the first four issues and,
1: and how the technically a
0: very good comic, but then I'm not a big swamp thing guy. And I was going to, I was going to jump off. Um, but then, you know, I heard John McRae, you know, John was on the show not too long ago and then <laughs> told us about how he was filling in for an issue on, on Swamp Thing and getting to draw on Constantine. So I've been looking forward to this. And for me, it didn't disappoint, but I I could see why it, it would, because you're right. It is a, a little bit of a detour, um, but I don't necessarily think that's a, a bad thing. And, and what, where I look at where some people could be disappointed is the fact that you only get eight issues uh, of this series. And so does Ram V have the space? Is he losing out on some real estate of the main story he wants to tell? But for me... This kind of harkened back to, you know, if we're talking about a Swamp Thing ongoing, and you 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 had those those long threads that were running through those those stories that were you know a little more long tail, um, but then every once in a while you would get a story where Swamp Thing just you know had to to solve a crime or was dealing with some criminals where they it, it wasn't necessarily part of the main story, but it still it gave you uh, a richness and it established the world and it helped you know about the motivations and the characterization of Swamp Thing. And I feel like this issue does the same um, because it, it shows who Levi is. It's it's kind of like uh, the status quo. Okay. If Levi is now Swamp Thing, Levi Kamel, then th- this is the sort of Swamp Thing that he'll, he'll be. These are the things he's going to be able to do. Um, and then having Constantine show up and, you know, yeah, I, I very much like the idea that this unexploded bomb was, sort of, uh, it, it was this gestation of the idea of not, uh, Nazism and fascism that was infecting things around it. And I, I took it as the way Swamp Thing needed to to solve the problem was the bomb was always meant to explode and it never did. And so it was slowly giving out its, um, its evil, right? Like it was kind of seeping out.
1: Right. Yeah. Whereas
0: he takes it to a, an uninhabited area where no one's around and, you know, explodes it. And that's the way to finally destroy it and keep it from impacting uh whether this will in fact tie into the longer story because maybe levi himself is infected by some ideas of nazism or fascism that could be a way that it could it could tie in um so i thought the story was was interesting and like you said uh rambi always has a you know ulterior motives and stories to tell but for me uh and and seeing john constantine show up and you know him and swamp thing have a, a long history from justice league dark and whatnot and John Constantine Mm -hmm. made his first uh, appearance, you know, in a, in a Swamp Thing comic. So their relationship goes back a long way. And so it's always great to see them together. Uh, But for me, where this issue shines the most is in the John McCray art, because as much as I like um, what Mike Perkins does to me, McRae's art is more organic. Um, And maybe it's because it's not quite as detailed um, that I get that that feeling of a little bit of a softer line and it feels a little more natural with McCrae's art. And so uh, I also really loved the way that John McCrae draws John Constantine. And this is only the, he, I think he had said he'd drawn him only twice before and, and just like a couple panels each time. And so him getting to go crazy with, uh, with Constantine with the stubble, with the trench coat uh, with the rumpled look and the cigarette and whatnot. It's, it's great. It's great to see. And I think McCrae, the fact that he's having fun here is, uh, is fantastic. I, I particularly, the f- my favorite panel in the entire book is where, um, John Constantine is looking up at Swamp Thing who's towering over him and Swamp Thing, uh, basically calls him a troublemaker. Uh, I, I just love that, that scene. Uh, yeah, there it is there. Uh, because <laughs> you are John Constantine troublemaker. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, that, that <laughs> panel is, is beautiful. So I absolutely love the art. Um, I thought it did a great job of, of kind of conveying for me a more, the more natural and organic feel of Swamp Thing than, uh, than Mike Perkins art has done. And that's nothing to take away from what Mike Perkins has done because his art is very detailed. Um, but for me, sometimes a little bit of a softer feel, a little bit less detail in the background can, can actually add, add more to the story. Um, so yeah, I actually enjoyed this issue a lot. Um, and then at the end, we do get, you know, I mentioned tying into Swamp Thing, and uh, we saw on the pages of, of Suicide Squad how Amanda Waller is, is out there looking to, to capture Swamp Thing. And uh, we see her on a mission with Peacemaker here, and they're, they're basically dropping some bait for Swamp Thing, trying to, uh, to capture him. So how that'll all play out, I guess we'll see. And this is not a surprise to anybody. We've talked about it before with the Suicide Squad movie coming up. They are just everywhere and um, it's not that I necessarily mind that the Suicide Squad you know it's yeah. just the Amanda Waller aspect that I, I have more of a problem with it's just man, Amanda Waller overload when does the movie come out can't come out soon enough so we can stop seeing so much Amanda <laughs> Waller
1: I, you know mind what mind. I, I, I can't even remember I, and I just watched the third, third trailer again but I never look it up. Uh, Suicide Squad
0: 2021 20, film uh, August 6th so we got about a month
1: yeah, well, so and mu- the month of August too. We're going to be getting a lot of every DC cover. Every DC comic has a has a Suicide Squad yeah. variant cover, so keep an eye out yeah. for that for uh, any Suicide Squad any Suicide Squad fan out there. Yep.
0: All right. Well, let's move on. We have uh, Batman Secret Files: The Signal. It's written by writer Tony Patrick, who I- I'm not familiar with at all. Uh, Christian Duce is the artist. Luis Guerrero does the colors and world design on letters. Um, and this is basically a signal book, a Duke Thomas book. And if you're not familiar with Duke Thomas, if you don't have a good understanding of of his history and what he did with the We Are Robin group and all those, you you may be a little lost. And I'm I'm sort of in that book. And this book had me wondering about Duke Thomas and, and wondering about what Scott Snyder's original plans were for him. You know, when he was introduced, everybody's like, oh, here we go with another Robin. And uh, and Snyder did come out and say that he never planned on Duke Thomas being Robin. He's he's the signal, and we've seen it various times where Batman has said you you are the the daytime Bat Family person, right? Like all the rest of us work at night, you're the daytime guy. I can't imagine that crime is that much less during the daytime in Gotham City that uh, one guy's enough. You know, you got 20 people at night, one guy during the day, the signal. Yeah. Um, so that's that's interesting to me. Uh, And I I will admit, if their plan for this uh, Batman um, Secret Files signal book was to get people interested in Duke Thomas, uh, I will admit it did work on me. Uh, I I realize I don't know enough about Duke Thomas, um, or I've forgotten what I've read because it, frankly, was probably forgettable. And so I do feel like, well, maybe I need to go back and and refresh on who Duke Thomas is. But the other part of it, you know, the more I thought about it – I don't know that it's ever been well-established. Like, I I, I feel like Snyder introduced him, but I don't think he ever did with him what he necessarily intended to. I feel like we didn't get a good handle on who Duke Thomas was supposed to be. And since he hasn't had necessarily his own series since then, like, is it established who who he is and and how he – like. I read this issue and I'm, I don't even know if the characterization of Duke Thomas is accurate or not, because I feel like I, I don't know who he is despite yeah. the fact that he's been around for several years now. So maybe that's the whole point that DC is doing this saying, Hey, is this going to sell? Uh, could we do a Duke Thomas series? I mean, the, the issue doesn't even end. We get it to be continued. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how to feel about it. I, I sort of like it. I like the ideas and I like a lot of the plot points. Um, There are some tropes here. Uh, Some former, we are Robin teammates of of the signal show up Rico Sheridan. And um, I remember what the other guy's name, Oh, Daxton chill. Um, They show up and they've apparently gotten powers from some young generation Z uh, or millennial who's 18 and has all this money um, and is somehow corrupt and has has given them powers and they they go up against uh signal um and and you know they're mad because they feel like duke you know turned their back on them they they were a, a grassroots we are robin group that was protecting their own broken down neighborhood and you know duke took the quick shortcut from the man the man being bruce wayne to become the signal and and they just feel like he's they feel abandoned they feel betrayed duke thomas and so they're they're out for a little bit of revenge and so they've thrown in with this guy who's got questionable morals and again that's just super tropey to me that that was probably the one part about the book that i didn't necessarily enjoy um but yeah this got me thinking about duke thomas and and he's not somebody that i necessarily even when he showed up in the future state outsider story he, he was here and gone and forgettable this has me a little more interested in him than i have been in a long time because i think he does have potential but I, I almost feel like you need to take him out of the Bat family in a way to, to have him fulfill that potential. Otherwise, he gets lost. There's, the, there's just so much noise and so many characters within the Bat family, and I don't know that it works. Um, I, I feel like he kind of needs to do what Dick Grayson did way back in the day, right, just go off on his own and and establish his own identity. I mean, his costume is reminiscent of the Bat family. You know, he's got like a Bat signal on his chest, even though it's, white and he's got little bat ears but his name is the signal it's it doesn't have anything to do with batman so yeah i feel like honestly duke thomas is a bit of a mess um but there is potential here to, to maybe turn him into a, a, a cool and interesting character on his own um so i, I guess we'll see and I, and I did like the characterization that patrick gave us of uh of bruce wayne when he meets up with this xavier xander guy or whoever this Millennial kid is, um, is Xander, I guess. Yeah. Is. yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought there was potential here. I, I will certainly read the the end of the end of this story. Uh, it it had me interested. I also like seeing Renee Montoya as com- the commissioner. Uh, obviously, I would like to see Jim Gordon as the commissioner of the Gotham City Police Department, but uh, if it's got to be somebody else, having uh, Montoya, that's that's cool. Harvey Bullock would be cool too, but uh, I like that Renee's getting a, a chance to shine in that in that role. Um, so yeah, I thought overall it was pretty good. Um, technically probably a little dialogue heavy from Tony Patrick, but, uh, I don't think he's done a lot of work. At least I'm not familiar with him. So hopefully that's something he'll learn a little bit more of a, an economy of language. Um, cause it was pretty, pretty dialogue heavy. It was a dense read. Uh, but overall I thought it was great. Um, and the art by Christian Ducey. So I, I'm familiar with his work from, from the flash. Uh, but this is much more polished than the work I've seen from him before. And maybe he purposely, was using more of a kinetic and sketchy style with flash to kind of convey that sense of movement. But here his line work is much more clean uh, backgrounds as well. So I thought the art was really spectacular. So overall I, I thought it was pretty good. I would actually recommend somebody pick, pick this up. Um, but again, if you're not familiar with Duke Thomas, you may have a little bit of trouble uh, following it, but you just got to just kind of plow through. Um, and hopefully it's uh, the first step on a road to kind of, establishing who duke thomas is because like i said i feel like we have
1: we don't have that yeah i i I thought this was an excellent uh uh primer for people who aren't familiar with the signal uh because i mean i'm 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 familiar enough with them but this was a much-needed primer for me uh it got me. It got me going and more interested in the character again. I mean, Duke Thomas. Uh, just a little bit of background. Duke Thomas's parents were killed by the killed by the Joker, and he's always been a little bit traumatized with the memory that his parents died from Joker toxin. And he was a member of We Are Robin uh, during the DC you campaign there was the we are robin series it was 12 issues long and that's what introduced us to uh well Scott Snyder introduced us to uh Duke Thomas but he became sort of the leader of we are robin and the other the other uh, we are Robin eventually disbanded, and now Duke Thomas, his the other members of We Are Robin, somewhat re- resent him for going off and becoming becoming uh what they call they they jokingly picked on him and called him a di- Batman's diversity pick. <laughs> that's, that's that's actually a word in the story, so I actually thought that was kind of uh, interesting. It was a good sort of like almost pop culture reference, and and but but Duke Thomas. Uh, one of the questions I have is I'm not sure what his power set is. And in fact, that's even seems to be one of the uh, plot points here. Is he seems to have the uh, some sort of photo photo light ability of cloaking himself, uh, camouflaging himself during the day, so you can't see him during the day, and um, he utilizes that to his advantage. Uh, uh, The other great concept that I like in this opening issue is the idea of the white market instead of the black market. The white market exists where all these criminals go to to buy various weapons on the, not the black market, but the white market. I love that we saw Dr. Veronica Kale, of one of Wonder Woman's villains, buying some, uh, trying to buy some uh, knockoff, sinister uh, yellow rings. <laughs> I love the fact that we also saw the Crime Bible, the Crime Bible, which I remember the Crime Bible back, uh, man, it's been like, I think it's been 10 years since we heard about, since we saw the Crime Bible and uh, the, the reference to the Order of the Stone these are really great callbacks and 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 the fact that we got commissioner montoya on here i think that's great cuz montoya was the question and she was the one uh during the 52 series that Went was looking for the crime Bible when she was the question. So there's a lot of fantastic callbacks to some really great DC storylines here. So that if you're if you're not familiar with uh Duke Thomas, I mean, I'm surprised that we got these these great story potential references to past storylines in this issue. I was not expecting it. I thought this was well written. Uh unlike you the 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 wordiness of the dialogue uh you mentioned it was a, a a good observation there it actually worked for me I because I think I needed I needed uh I needed a lot of the exposition to sort of fill me in and Tony Patrick uh I thought his writing was pretty good the art was I thought was was fantastic so I'm I'm really impressed with this and I give this a high recommend Yeah I agree and uh, it was just such a
0: surprise like when I saw it I'm like really a signal book is this what we need but yeah
1: it uh it was a it was,
0: it was a really good read. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on to crush and Lobo. Number two. This is from writer Mariko Tamaki. Art is by Amon K. Nahalpan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> I always struggle with that one. Uh, Tamara Bonvillain does the colors arena Mare on letters. Uh, and there's a really cool, uh, Amanda Connor coffee cover. <laughs> I'll call it, uh, as well. And then, uh, does the, the uh, other cover? Sorry. Let me uh, take a quick peek. The uh, variant covers by Dan Mora. Okay. I thought the art side looked familiar. Um, so we saw last issue and the first issue that um, Crush had broken up with her girlfriend and her dad had reached out. He's in uh, some kind of intergalactic jail and his dad reached out and wanted her to come and uh, visit. And that's where this, uh, this issue sort of takes off. And you weren't a big fan of the first issue of this rocky how'd you feel about issue number two
1: um you know what i've uh (laughs) can you if you can believe this i've actually went over i went over in my head uh how harsh i was going to be on this second issue and uh i'm really glad i had time to reflect on it i really am because uh because the nicest thing i can say about it and i mean i really do mean this in a sincere nice way is this is just not my cup of tea and but but uh trying to be as objective as possible it, Marika Tamaki, this is not a, this is not a bad story. This is just one that I just, this doesn't feel like a Lobo crush story to me because Lobo, at least in the second issue, is non existent. This is crush reflecting on her relationship. She, to me, uh, crush is being written like a human teenager. A human female teenager who has a same-sex relationship and who's who's just struggling to fit in and wants to be loved and has those issues and and that's you know what I think a lot of I'm sure a lot of readers may might be able to relate to that and uh, for me I just wanted a little bit more of a more psychotic I I, I like more of the Lobo craziness um, but I think that the the goal of DC here with Crush and I think the goal of Marika Tamaki is to sort of you know Crush is not like Lobo she doesn't like her dad i mean she yes she does she loses her temper she can be very angry and i'm sure she's she does some crazy things in this issue too she gets into a fight and she gets into a fight in, in space and her spaceship gets uh, you know destroyed and she ends up uh, hitching a ride on a garbage truck uh, right in right that's takes her right to the jail where she's going to visit daddy Lobo and there is some humor here and uh, there's the coffeeologist who she gets into a fight with when she's going. She, she uses, apparently there's, there's, there's internet in space. She actually uses her iPhone. <laughs> I guess there's Wi-Fi in space. She actually uses her, her iPhone to find out where there's a truck stop in space so she can stop and refill her coffee mug in the middle of space. So there is some craziness to it, which I expect from a Lobo story. And I just, I wanted more. I want more Lobo and a little bit less Crush. But that's my bias, and that's a little bit, you know, probably unfair of me to say. But I, I, I just have a hard time with imagining Crush trying to have a relationship with this perfect, perfect teenage billionaire girl, and this billionaire girl is putting up with a lot of nonsense from Crush and. I just found that part really boring. The most boring aspects of this comic book for me personally was the eight or nine or ten or ten fifteen pages where she's, which are wasted, which with her having a flashback talking to her perfect girlfriend that they that she broke up with anyway, but they I'm sure they're getting back together because otherwise why waste all those pages on it? And I don't want I re- I want Crush to be dysfunctional. If there's one character that I don't want to ever be happy, it's Crush cuz I don't view that you know what I mean I it just seems to me that she's the daughter of Lobo she embodies uh, she should embody dysfunction and embody focus she should embody humor and dysfunction and she she should be comic uh, comic relief along with Lobo for us uh but that's my personal point of view and I got to respect uh, other people may feel very differently but my favorite crush scenes in this issue was when she's fighting and swearing and she's fighting the coffeeologist there and just going nuts that's that's the side of a crush that I enjoy the most but uh I don't know I don't know do you do you feel different or what yeah, well,
0: a little bit. I mean, I, the thing is, I don't have any context for Crush, right? Like, I hadn't read really read anything that she was in previous to the the first issue of Crush and Lobo, and, and I'm not a Lobo fan. I, his over the top, it just it does just doesn't do it for me. So, getting a, a, I don't have any context for Crush, and so to me, this is this is my first sort of exposure to her, and so I, I can't really comment on whether she seems you know, out of character or, 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 not. I mean, for me, the characterization seems fine, but again, I, I don't have anything to compare it to. Um, I did. I mean, there is humor here. There's a lot of funny lines. And I loved the fact that Lobo was wearing reading glasses at one point, which I just <laughs> yeah. think is, is not a, <laughs> is not a, shouldn't be a thing. Um, but mostly what I, what I was left with was for being a, sort of an angsty teenage love story in a lot of ways, the comic was a lot of fun. And I think that the art, uh, especially the color work, really reflects that. Um, so Am and K gets to draw spaceships and aliens, you know, tentacled aliens and whatnot, and does an incredible job of that. And the, the fight scenes are very kinetic and uh, filled with a lot of detail. Uh, but yet the quiet moments between Crush and her girlfriend are handled very well. Uh, great facial expressions, great emotions. So I, I was very very impressed with the art. Um, and I, 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 but I do feel like this is a bit of a transitional issue. You know, the first issue sort of established the tone of the series. And with Crush arriving at her father's prison uh, on the last page of this story and, and ready to confront him, I imagine the next issue will be a lot of that. Um, and I got to think that Lobo is in some way going to convince Crush or try to use Crush as a way to escape, despite him, you know, claiming to ha- be in a different place. And, um, Ready to take accountability for a lot of his past actions, or what? I might not know Lobo that well, but but I know that that's not Lobo. He's he's got to have yeah. some sort of uh, ulterior motive. So in a little in in a way, this was a little bit of a transitional issue. Um, and I think the, the the strength of it lies in the art and the color work, the line work and the color work. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it well enough, but I, I am coming at it from the perspective of not really having read that many level stories and, and read almost nothing of crush previous to this. So I did enjoy it. I I thought it was fun, uh, but I could see why some others might not like it.
1: I I, I just,
0: I just speaking to them.
1: Yeah. I just want to be clear that it would, it would be unfair of me to say that this is that, that crush is out of character. She's not, she's not necessarily out of character. There is consistency in some general respects to how she was in, in Teen Titans. Uh, I just, I'm just, I'm, my own particular bias is that I would like her to err on the psychotic side as opposed to the teenage angsty, just, you know, by the numbers, you know, typical teenage side because I just, she's, she's half Cesarean and, and I just can't imagine she's going to be act, she should not be this normal. <laughs> I mean, my mind, but that's just me. That's, that's, that's just me. Maybe she'll get more psychotic as the, as the,
0: yeah, I was just going to say that it could very well be that, you know, visiting with her father sort of triggers that and she <laughs> does get more, more crazy. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Uh, next we're going to talk about Batman number 110. This is from writer James Tyne the fourth. We have art from Jorge Jimenez to More does the colors. Clayton Cowell does the letters. And then, uh, as we've seen in a lot of these Batman, but although I don't think we got one last last month, uh, but our last issue, but there is the the um, the Ghostmaker Backup, Chapter 4. James Tynan also writes that. The art there is by Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. Uh, Ramudo, Ramulo Fajardo Jr. handles colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. So um, we're continuing down the path of the magistrate, of course, as we have been in, in Batman for a long time, but it didn't feel as derivative which is so interesting to talk about how a, a story that takes place before future state could feel derivative of a story that takes place in the future but based <laughs> on the fact that it was published first and you're pulling in ideas from that it, that that's basically what it is we're seeing James Tynan build up to uh, this idea of the magistrate and that's just not not the, the usual way to do it, right? It all goes back to the non-linear way that DC decided to do uh, to do Future States. So um, we basically have Batman taking on uh, Peacekeeper 1. Um, and we, we do learn a little bit uh, that Peacekeeper 1 uh, wasn't necessarily who we first thought that he might be. Like he was introduced as this, this guard at, at, uh, Arkham Asylum, who was, you know, very much, uh, yeah. a hero of, of a day and whatnot. And Sean, yeah. Sean Mahoney, you know, was his name. And, um, he, he was a hero. And because of that Simon say thought he would be the, the perfect sort of face of, of the magistrate, right? Like make him the first peacekeeper. And then we find out that, uh, actually he was a, a very sadistic guard there who, you know, wanted to be a a police officer, but was rejected for, you know, reasons of um, psychological problems and whatnot. And so he was really not somebody that you would ever trust in in a position of authority. And he, now he's become the face of the magistrate, which I guess sort of works for Simon St. Right. He's trying to sow chaos. He's trying to sow disorder. Um, He's trying to, to instill fear in the people of Gotham so that they will accept the magistrate, this, This fascist organization taking over as the protectors of Gotham, taking over for any vigilantes like Batman, taking over for a more established uh, law and order group like the Gotham City Police Department. And as I was reading this issue, what struck me was, so we understand why Simon St. wants the chaos and the disorder and the fear so that he can establish the magistrate. But we don't actually know why he wants to establish the magistrate. Like, what is the ultimate goal? Is it just to rule Gotham? Is it just to be powerful? Is it just he just craves power for power's sake? Like, is there another end game? And maybe that's why I'm struggling with this whole idea of the Magistrate storyline, because i I have no point of reference for Simon Saint. He's just at this point sort of a mustache twirling villain because I can't understand why he's doing it. You know, I, yeah. I, I get why he's instilling the fear and the chaos. It's to get it's to establish the Magistrate as the the biggest power broker in Gotham, but why? (laughs) Like, is it just power for power's sake? Because if that's the case, then again, I got to go back to this idea of the mustache twirling villain. Um, (laughs) But I, I I did like the action. I do like that. The stakes are raised. I do like the fact that even though it may not seem realistic, that Sean Mahoney apparently is a match for Batman one-on-one in hand-to-hand combat. and, And Bruce Wayne ends up having to, to rely on Ghostmaker um, rescuing him, and and I still have the same problems with Ghostmaker that I've had from the beginning. I like him as a as a character. Um, the problems that, that stem is the same problems I have with anything that's retconned in. Like, wait, we have how many how many decades and decades of sto- Batman stories, and we were never told that there was another guy training alongside Batman when he was traveling the world. Well, the reason we were never told is because the character didn't exist because it wasn't until James <laughs> Sinon decided to go back and say, hey, guess what? We're going to insert this in there. And I just, I don't know. I, I don't like that. I wish somebody had thought a long time ago, hey, let's put this character there and somebody will develop him later. Of course, no artist is ever going to or writer is ever going to do that, right? It's always retcon. It's the same problem I have with the Court of Owls. Wait, Batman's the world's greatest detective, but yet the Court of Owls was... Existing in in the background of Gotham for decades, and Batman never knew until Scott Snyder came up with the idea. You know, and so, but all that being said, I, I do like what, if I can put that aside, that little nitpick. Uh, I do like the dynamic between Batman and Ghostmaker. He's a fun. I think Ghostmaker's is a fun character. Um, so this was one of the better issues, or one of the issues of Batman that I, I've enjoyed the most uh, recently. Um because despite the fact that the magistrate is front and center here we 're getting plenty of other stuff we 're getting plenty of ghostmaker we 're getting plenty of oracle we 're getting some harley quinn we 're getting some molly miracle um, and so despite the fact that it 's the magistrate is kind of the spine of the story we 're getting enough interesting other aspects of the mythos of Batman and the story in um, of Gotham that tynan 's telling. That it's enough to distract me from the problems I have with the magistrate, uh, but I do wish that we, we did have a little more motivation uh, or background into the motivation of Simon St. beyond just, he, he just wants to have power. Um, and then Mayor Nakano, is there a more spineless character that's been introduced in, in, or, or incompetent? Yeah, he seems to be he's being
1: played like a violin. He's easily manipulated. Oh my god.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like when he first showed up, I had a feeling I, I was going to be like, god, this guy really? Because the thing is he's he's smart enough and politically savvy, savvy enough to get elected to the highest office, you know, civilian office in Gotham City. How could he be this oblivious to what Simon Saint and and, and others are doing? in using him it's it's absolutely ridiculous I mean I, I guess the argument could be made he's blinded by his trauma and and sorrow and loss over his partner and what happened to him um, that he'll you know he figures the ends justify the uh, the means of getting uh, you know allowing the magistrate to take over but
1: right. I don't know man I feel
0: like anybody with half a brain would realize so well. uh, and as far as the art goes Jorge Jimenez I mean it's it's pretty standard Jorge Jimenez art it, it feels uh the same quality that his Batman art has felt throughout, um, which it's not my favorite Jorge Jimenez art. Uh, And I I talked about it way back during the, uh, the Joker war. Um, It's just a little bit of a looser style. And I prefer when his style is a little tighter. Um, But that being said, I have absolutely zero problem with his storytelling, the visual pacing, the transitions uh, transitions from panel to panel, all very good, the color work. So visually it's a, it's a pretty strong book. It's just not, not my favorite Jorge Jimenez art, and that's just a personal, a personal thing. So I'm, I'm I'll give Jorge a lot of credit for giving us some really great dynamic art here. So, uh, what were your thoughts on the main story, Rocky?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend and uh, Marinagano's uh, stupidity and naivete for a second uh, because I, I do think that uh, just to maybe give some props to uh, writer James Tiny in here. I do think that he's done a reasonably good job of showing just how much of a, PR, a successful P, negative PR campaign Simon Saint has managed to orchestrate through the scarecrow and in blaming all these miscellaneous attacks on various uh uh, uh on various Gotham businesses and and blaming the unsanity Collective about it, stoking the fear and not doing it with gas, but it's easy to stoke the fear in Gotham this is at at the end of uh, Joker War. Uh, City Hall. Uh, he's. I mean, City Hall wasn't even being attacked. It was. It was. Well, it was kind of all a ruse, uh, an elaborate ruse to make um, the mayor believe, uh, Mayor Nagano believe that Gotham was being attacked by the Insanity Collective. Simon Saint, in conjunction with the Scarecrow, creates a. Uh, has created literally created a fear state without the use of gas and making the people of Gotham believe that Miracle Molly and the Insanity Collective are behind the state of panic and fear and the crime spree that Gotham has been in for the last five months since A-Day, since Arkham Asylum Day, ever since that day that Arkham Asylum was destroyed and that Joker got the blame for that, it's it has set off in a, a chain of events that has ultimately led to what is coming to fruition in this issue. And this issue ends with uh, the magistrate program being finally approved and the peacekeepers uh, being sent right to an abandoned uh, abandoned Wayne Industry Warehouse where the Insanity Collective is with Miracle Molly, and they ask that she surrender. She surrenders, but they won't take her surrender. They're going to kill her, and that's how it ends. It ends on a big cliffhanger here, and we know that Batman and Ghostmaker aren't far behind. This is, so much happens in this issue. There is also Nightwing and Oracle. Nightwing says, I'm not going back to Bloodhaven. I'm going to stay here. I'm on my way. Oracle's on guard here. Miracle Molly is, uh, we're going to be able to see her strut some of her stuff next issue. This has been, this is what it's been building to all this time. And I'm a little bit more forgiving than you are on the whole power hungry uh, Simon Saint. I mean, I mean, you know, quest for power is 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 an age old motive. I appreciate maybe you wanted something a little bit more sophisticated, but you know this this is Gotham, and sometimes you know some of these the motivations here are, are can be quite basic. I th- this this worked for me, and um yeah, this is as I said, Chase, You and I have said this before, and in, in in almost every week we say the same thing. In so many ways, it's too bad Future State revealed some of this stuff because. I think this might have had more gravitas had we not known what the outcome is at Future State, because Future State sort of took the, you know, re- made some reveals that otherwise would have been pleasant surprises here. But uh, I, I reflect your your comments on uh, Jose Jimenez's uh, uh, art. Uh, I like it. Uh, I still, I really like the. I love Ghostmaker and Harley and Batman working together. I think they make a hell of a team. I love the fact that Batman actually blew up. I, I time the explosives on 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 the uh, on the on the magistrates building he timed those explosives uh in order to create a form of morse code that only Ghostmaker could read I thought that was brilliant I thought that was awesome that he did that and Ghostmaker picked up on it and he's right behind him with harley Quinn of all people helping him out I just i don't know i'm I'm having a lot of fun with this man i uh this is definitely there's definitely some uh comics this week and that would that are just putting a smile on my face and this was one of those issues.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, You know, as much as I complain about magistrate, like if I didn't know, if I didn't know what the magistrate was, if the magistrate was a mystery, like what is this magistrate? What is he trying to do? I would be much more invested in this story. But the idea of this fascist organization, this fascist militaristic organization running Gotham City, is so. 2020 to me <laughs> you know like it was so long ago right mm-hmm. but we talked about it you know it's the it's reflection of the politics and this the way the world is right now that we're getting all these fascist villains that's just the way that it goes these things come in cycles um but the fact that i know what it is removes some of that air of mystery and it. it's it's like you know reading the last page of a mystery novel when you find out who did it you can still go back and read the rest of the novel and it can still be enjoyable and very well done but you're missing some of that impact, you know. So, yeah, it is it is too bad that they chose to release Future State the way they did. Uh as far as the backup, I don't really have a lot to say that doesn't sound like what I've said about this already. <laughs> um I think that Ricardo Lopez Ortiz's art his his style is similar to Jorge Jimenez but even uh a little more stylized and a little a little rougher. Um and so it's it's not my my favorite. Um but it, it it is good comic art. It's just personally not my not my favorite. Um and it is interesting. I, I do feel like in this particular chapter of the story we get less characterization of uh Ghostmaker than we've gotten previously from some of the other uh some of the other chapters. But man, is this a whole heck of a lot of fun. Um <laughs> yeah. it's fleshing out who Ghostmaker is as a as a character. We get uh, a flashback where we see uh, Ghostmaker having fought against the uh, Investigator previously. The the instigator, Uh, instigator, instigator. Sorry, (laughs) instigator. uh, Previously, Um, and it's great. You know, just talking about how he, you know, fought him for just hours on end uh, and never tired. It's just, it's kind of adding to that that mystique of of Ghostmaker. And again, I just have to put it out of my mind that. Uh, and, and Tynan did tr- try to build it into his uh, his character, who he has as a character, right? Like he's he doesn't want to be known. He wants to be in the background. That's why we haven't heard of him, even though he's been out there operating for just as long as Batman. Uh, so just kind of adding to the mystique. And I, I got to imagine that James Tynan's having a lot of fun uh, with this, this Ghostmaker backup. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good story i, I it makes me i mean I, i've been a fan of the ghostmaker character despite that little nitpick from the beginning i think he's my favorite of the new characters that that tynan has created um and yeah I wouldn't be surprised if at the at the end of this when it's all said and done and we've talked about this before the ghostmaker would get his own series at some point so i guess we'll see
1: yeah i I don't have much to add to your comments i i i should, this was a lot of fun and i i actually think it's uh I like the fact that Ghostmaker seems to be a character that is not... He's not as serious as Batman. He's not... I don't... I know that Ghostmaker, to many people, they criticize Ghostmaker as being sort of a Batman analog. But I actually find... If... I have no problem with that, but he's Batman light. And I like that because I kind of like, a I like Ghostmaker. He's got more of a sense of humor. He's, a, he is generally a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more crazy. And, but he's still got high, he does have his own principles and he's, he's got his own eclectic, crazy uh, rogues gallery as these series of backups have shown. I love Madame Midas. I think she's a great billionaire bitch. <laughs> I think she brings something to it and I I, I enjoy it. I'm, Again, this is this is fun. This is what uh, James Tynion is is. He is keeping Ghostmaker backup stories very straightforward. Uh, perhaps too simple, uh, if I could use that term. But I think for me it works, and I and I think that these things have long term value. I think these characters, uh, there's a there's so much to work with moving forward. So we'll, we'll see.
0: Uh, all right, up next we have. Action Comics 2021 Annual Number One from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, Saya Elm does the art for pages one through seventeen and thirty-one through forty. We have Scott Godlewski on the middle pages of eighteen through thirty. Hi-Fi is the colorist. Dave Sharp is the letters. And this is another Tales of the House of L, similar to the Future State one shot that we got uh, in, uh, from Philip Kennedy Johnson during during Future State. So, uh, what do you think about this
1: one, Rocky? Um, sorry, I'm just getting set up here. Yeah. Um, this was very much a, this felt like it was a continuation in many ways of the story we got in a future state where, cause this is a future story of the house of El thousands of years from now, where we know that ultimately Kalal is missing and ultimately the son of Kalal, uh, 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 John Jonathan Kent is actually uh, Feroz, who is uh, the ultimate bad guy who has defeated has killed Darkseid, side and is the ruler of apocalypse and this this issue essentially introduces us to a very young uh introduces us to a a, a very young uh, th- uh Theola and Theola this is a younger version of the the Theola that we are seeing in the pages of action comics, the older Theola is now, was rescued by Superman on, on those Warzone battleships and is now at the Fortress of Solitude and being cons- uh, consoled by Lois Lane. And this is the story of a younger uh, Theola who uh, was told uh, these stories when she was younger. Uh, she is uh, just a, a reminder to some readers, Theola, Theola is, a me- is a is a fail. Uh, a fallocn a fail am I saying that right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I would probably say Thocn yeah
1: fallo uh, and a fallocn is a is a sort of a they're they're they branched off from the Kryptonian uh, world thousands of years ago, long before Krypton exploded, and ultimately there there's going to be a reuniting of the fallocian and the Kryptonian people, and ultimately, this is a story where this uh, older gentleman t- tells uh, Theola this story about us uh, about what's going to happen in the future uh, on the House of El, where there's a marriage of two houses. There's a marriage of a wedding between Allura Vanel, who is a Valkyrie of Warworld, and uh, this a person by the name of Khan, who is a Faelosian, uh of Warworld Prime. And this the wedding that they have, reuniting their two ho- reuniting their houses is interrupted and attacked by Heros, who uses a Phantom Zone projector to, to basically project all of these various members of the House of El uh, uh, into the Phantom Zone, consisting of Brandon Kent, who is Earth Superman, Ronan Kent, who is the protector of Metropolis, uh, uh, Rowan Kent, she's the uh, f- uh, female Blue Lantern, and uh, also uh, Kara zor makes an appearance, and... Again, this is—it's interesting. They end up trapped in the Phantom Zone, where they end up meeting with Cyborg Superman, and this is this is a good adventure tale. This is a long story. You get get a lot of bang for your buck. There is there's even uh, there's limited characterization here, but because there's not much you can do in just the short few in the you know in the forty one pages or the forty some odd pages of the annual here. I think there's thirty eight pages of story, but uh but in any event i I didn't mind it. I just openly question though what's the point of this? I don't see this future ever coming to fruition, so I consider this more of a what if story or an imaginary tale of a of a Superman family, the house of el thousands of years hence but there's no question that if you, if you really liked a lot of people, if I, having read the reviews of Future State and we reviewed all the Future State issues, we actually didn't mind if I recall that, that, that House of L issue in Future State. It was one of the, you know, one of the more interesting stories and. This is, you know, just sort of building on the lore of that, the mythology of what led to the House of El and the various players. And this ends with Ronan Kent, the future Black Superman, who is the protector of Metropolis, actually becoming Earth's Superman because Brandon Kent gives him that mantle. And that is at the end of this issue. So this is a represent, represent, representative of the legacy of the House of El. Uh, there's a lot of characters involved here. They talk about hope and they get out of the... They, they fight, they defeat uh they against all odds they managed to get out of the phantom zone it's it's action packed there's a lot of uh you know again it's um you know it i personally i wanted um i'm not a huge fan of the future in to me i want a future superman who is grounded on earth I, I don't like the future scientific Superman with his own house of L and everyone's still wearing the S symbol and everything else. That's just my cup of tea. I kind of like a more grounded Superman family on Earth as opposed to what this has to offer. But again, just like I said with Crush and Lobo, this is just another interpretation of the future Superman. And I think it's actually it's actually well written. It's it's well done. And I apologize, Jason. Who, who wrote it? I never even... Uh... A
0: Philip Kennedy Johnson.
1: Right. Uh, yeah.
0: Same guy who wrote the uh, the House of L one shot, so right.
1: But I I don't know. Uh, what did you think? I thought I thought it, it's sort of typical because it it makes sense that Philip Kennedy Johnson wrote this. But uh, you know, no real surprises here to me.
0: Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. Like, what what is the point of this? Like, why is this why is this necessary? Um, because again, much like the Crime Syndicate story I was talking about that we kicked kicked the episode off with about how. I don't have any context for these characters. So why should I care a hundred percent that other than the fact that these are descendants of Superman, which I also find to be strange. Like this, this is a big family. Um, so did John Kent just have like a hundred kids or, or what? Like <laughs> yeah. we know Pyrrhus himself is, is the son of, of Kal-El, the son of our Superman and Circe, which is a whole nother thing that I've, I've left alone, but, and obviously the implication being well Cersei probably tricked Superman you know she maybe under the guy she made herself look like Lois Lane and that's how she got impregnated and had this Piers guy who redeems himself in the the story that we had previously read in Future State here he's still a bad guy uh there's just a lot of problems with this in my mind like how is you know yes it's it's many many years in the future but um like how has the family gotten so big and why should I care about any of these characters? Cause I kind of don't. And why, and why does cyborg Superman not look cybernetic at all anymore? Like that's never explained. Like if you're going to do Hank Henshaw and make him look like Hank Henshaw, and then maybe that's my in, that's where I can feel some uh, something familiar, a touchstone so that I get more invested in the story but he doesn't act like Cyborg Superman. He doesn't look like Cyborg Superman. So yeah, I, I end up this just it felt like a it was honestly a chore to read. Like, and I'm a Superman fan. I should never feel like reading the Superman book is a chore to read. But Kal El certainly doesn't show up anywhere in this story, and he didn't show up anywhere in the the previous House of L one shot. And to me, that's a little bit of a problem um, because you're you're putting house of L on there. And then I, I want some of my Superman, at least in a flashback, at least give me something, but there's nothing. It's just all these characters. And so you end up spending the first half of the book, trying to keep straight who's who and Brandon Kent's the Superman of earth. And then he, he lets Ronan take over and, and again, so what I I don't care about any any of these characters. I'm not invested in them. Like why should I care? It ends up feeling very much like a waste um, so yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't really care for it. I thought the art was fine. Um, it wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. It was just comic book art. Um, Godlewski did the future state house of L and I felt the same about that. Um, he's not somebody whose art I, I particularly in, you know, enjoy or that it stands out to me, but it's certainly serviceable. Um, so yeah, I mean, ultimately I was a little bit disappointed. Um, but I, I, I and I didn't necessarily even have any expectations going in when I saw the House of L based on what we got in the in the future state House of L, where I didn't care about the characters and it felt like an unnecessary story. I, I was pretty sure this was going to be the same thing and it, and it was. Um, so I, I don't know and, and I, I would I would think that anybody who's not a Superman fan is is not picking this up, but if you're a Superman fan, you don't get any Superman. So I, I'm just again I'm just not sure what the purpose of this was, other than to give Philip Kennedy Johnson a chance to to world build, which I know he loves to do. Yeah. But without context, without something that anchors it to the Superman that we care about, it feels a little bit
1: yeah. Nasty. I think. I think they're just going to make it a tale of the Omniverse and, you know, everything matters. And it'll be a story that exists out there in the multiverse somewhere, regardless of what happens to the mainstream DC universe. And every now and then we'll probably get a story of this future far off era of Superman that exists somewhere out there in the Omniverse. So uh, because just in defense, Jace, I will say in defense of these types of stories. I mean, back. I remember back in the seventies during the Kurt Swan era. I remember we would get random stories like this out of the blue about future, and we'd get only eight pages of it, and just you know, just craziness, and and you know, it, it was fun back then. And and if I'm being really objective here, this this is you know. I did take my time reading this and there is a story here. There are a bunch of characters that, you know, I think that if this, this has a lot of potential to be its own universe, its own world, if they want to build upon it. So I'm, you know, I'm a little bit less harsh on it than I was because uh, I was a little bit more harsh on it during future state because I, 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 I it kind of lost me. But uh, anyways, I think, I think of anything, maybe DC is trying to satisfy too many, maybe too many of too many readers maybe with their Superman because they're going off in so many myriad of different directions. I think that might be, uh, what they're trying to do with, uh, and, and, and to what effect and to what, uh, whether or not it's working or not. I'm not sure because we're not privy to sales. So, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. And maybe I am being too, too harsh on it. Um, and I didn't mind those stories back in the day, especially, you know, Silver Age and, and even into the Bronze Age where you'd get these sort of one-if fanciful tales. But it was usually a backup story. You know, when I, you know I got a big chunk of the Superman that I cared about uh, as the main story. And so that's, that's the difference. And in a way, it's sort of the same problem I have right now with, with Superman. It's been so long. It's been pre-Bendis before I've gotten some Superman stories that I like that feel like actual Superman stories. So when I get this, you know, giant annual with 40 pages and it's none of the Superman that I enjoy, you know, I think that's yeah. my My criticism, this probably has something to do with my frustration for not having had a good Superman story in quite a long time. So
1: yeah.
0: anyway, let's move on. Uh, Justice League number 64, United Order part one. Uh, from writer Brian Michael Bendis, the art is by Steve Pugh, colors by Nick Falardi, letters by Josh Reed. Um, and let me make sure – so <laughs> I've already read 65. I want to make sure that I'm clear on what happens here. Um, so, yeah, basically <laughs> Naomi has become part of the Justice League, and her parents show up for uh, a tour of the, the Hall of Justice. Meanwhile, uh, out in space the at the headquarters of the United Planets – Uh, Sinmar Utopica who was the the big bad that Brian Michael Bendis introduced right at the end of his his run of Superman is about to go on trial but it turns out that he escaped and he's headed toward Earth to get his revenge on Superman and despite the fact that the um, the United Order which is sort of the peacekeeping force of the uh, United Planets had been able to Capture Sinmar Utopica and, and keep him subdued. He he has escaped, and uh, apparently, all of a sudden, this uh, United Order is no longer a match for him because he defeats them, and is headed toward Earth. And um, the the United Order makes a, a call, a, a warning to Earth from Hawkslayer, the Thanagarian member of the United Order, calls and says, "Hey, just a heads up. This you know crazy bad dude is." is headed your way um, and probably is going to want to destroy the, uh, the earth. So that's basically all that happens in this issue. And then other than that, we get a little bit of um, some, some character who we don't know who he is uh, yet. We find out in, in issue 65, but he's basically stalking green arrow and black canary who are trying to have some, some quiet moments to themselves. Um, And, who he is, we find out next issue, and yeah, that's a whole nother thing that we'll <laughs> definitely be, be talking about in, in depth. But, but this very much feels like a Brian Michael Bendis issue, you know, tons of dialogue, but not a lot of stuff actually happening. And yeah. a reminder that Bendis couldn't possibly care less about any sort of continuity uh, or um, history of the D.C., which goes hand in hand with who that mysterious character is that I mentioned. But also it goes hand in hand with Bendis changing the way Krypton blew up and introducing us to Rogol Czar. And just, you know, uh, I, I, yeah. I've never been a fan of Bendis and I have to admit, you know, meeting him, the man's joy of comics is infectious. And I, I, I don't think it's ego or whatnot that he thinks he's such a great comic writer that he, um, you know, can ignore continuity and history and just insert, you know, I just was talking earlier about how much I dislike retcons and Bendis is the king of retcon these days. Cause he just, I think he puts blinders on. He just wants to tell the story that he wants to tell and he'll shoehorn it in any way that he can and previous history and continuity be damned. Um, and so, you know, this idea of the way the United Planet started has, has different from how it was previously. Uh, the idea of a role like I mentioned, this mysterious character that we'll talk about uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, and then you, on top of that, you get all the extraneous dialogue. Uh, and it just, it's just not a very good comic. Um, the art by Steve Pugh. This is, uh, you know, last thing we saw Steve Pugh do was the, going back to future state again. It's like a bad penny. It keeps turning up in this episode, uh, but he did the three issue, uh, Superman versus Imperius Lex. And uh, I felt like that art was a little stiff, with really <laughs> thick line work. Here his art is uh, much finer, much finer lines, uh, much more dynamic, much more kinetic, feels a little more, um, it doesn't feel so stiff. Uh, and I think he does a great job. Uh, so I, I absolutely love the art, love the color work. Um, but man, this Justice League title... <laughs> It's, well. it's not good. It's just, it's not, I'm not, I'm not enjoying it. Um, and I mean, again, it's, it's Bendis. So no surprise that he takes a character that he created in Superman just as he was leaving the title, maybe he didn't get to do what he wanted to do with him there. So let's bring him in here. But is it every single character uh, and villain that Bendis comes up with have to be like, like on level with dark side as a threat, like, can we get some more grounded human stories? You know, instead it's, we've gone from the, the villains of Naomi's home world that, you know, are, are universe ending threats to now Sinmar Utopia, uh, Utopica, who's, you know, the more powerful than, than Superman. And I don't know, it just, it feels tired and tropey and uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not good. It's not good.
1: Well, so. uh, just to build on what you're saying, the uh, the they Bendis has had a problem with DC in that he's never really finished the storyline. He never really finished the Rogelzar storyline. It sort of ended abruptly. Uh, with Rogelzar, wasn't even really punished. He was stopped. That was it. And then he ended up in the 31st century. And then and then with 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 event Leviathan, that never really had an ending. And then we just finished reviewing Checkmate Number One last week. And uh, nothing really has an ending. Naomi was six issues, it never really had an ending. We had six issues of his Naomi. We still, at the end of six issues of Naomi, we didn't even know what her power set was. We knew nothing about her homeworld. We knew very, very little. Uh, we got a first story arc here in Justice League, and it never had an ending. It had a non-ending. They just went to another Naomi's home world and then just end up coming back because it was kind of a poisonous world. Again, nothing substantive, nothing was learned, nothing was... It, oh, and and the thing is he bendis is building on and taking plot lines from his other storylines and taking it here we we had sinmar utopica which was a villain that i never understood i don't know but when when i was reading his uh, superman action comics whatever whatever it was there I, I I didn't understand Sinmar Utopica. I never understood the villain. I didn't. I still don't know what the motivations of the villain were. I it actually needed to be explained to me at the beginning of this issue who Sinmar Utopica is. I didn't really know. I never. I never understood why. I still don't understand why Sinmar Utopica wants to destroy Superman. That was never explained, even in the four or five issues that in, in Superman. Just really terribly handled. And we now know for what. Bendis is selfish. He only writes for himself and he only writes for his own storylines. And and no more is there, a, is that a better example of that than in this issue. Now, having said that, I want to go back here and I do want to give, uh, if you can believe this, this, you know, hell has frozen over. I'm going to give Bendis a compliment here. <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm going to give him a good compliment because I mean, he he's taken some pretty, I've been hard on him. I actually really enjoy his his interaction here that he scripts between Oliver Queen and Black Canary. I thought it was quite well, and I didn't mind the dialogue. I thought it was really well. I thought it was quite nice. I thought uh, it was even romantic. There were some nice quiet moments. And then uh, Damon Rose, and um, and Damon Rose uh, is a sort of, we believe, an assassin. And he, 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 he names himself in this issue, so that, that takes place in this issue. I'm being cautious here because Jason and I have read this, the subsequent issue. So Damon Rose was introduced as Damon Rose. We know he was Damon Rose in Checkmate number one. He he is here. So, so if you did read Checkmate number one, you might think that this individual, Damon Rose, is, is out to kill them. But apparently he's not. He's affiliated with Checkmate. But that's all we find out this issue. And uh, he interacts with uh, Oliver Queen and Black Canary. Again. It's very decompressed. It's all dialogue. Bendis' typical style of pushing everything to the next issue until things build to a hilt. And then in, in the final issue of the story arc, ultimately reveal nothing. That is unfortunately likely what's going to happen here. Of all things, we get Naomi's parents. Who would have thought that it was so important that we meet Naomi's parents and that Naomi's parents visit the Hall of Justice? Um, and they're, I guess they're having some sort of picnic. I mean, Black Adam is eating an apple outside the Hall of Justice while, while Aquaman out of the blue wants to have a sparring match with Naomi on the front lawn of the Hall of Justice. Um, I guess this is the new Justice League, I guess. And it's not even that bad. It's just that this is, this, you can tell he wrote the Avengers. This actually if you've ever read his 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 Avengers work, this is the type of stuff that the Avengers would engage in all that you know this is just a very different way to write these seemingly innocuous character moments where Bendis will give the illusion that he's developing these characters when he's not. all he's doing is making them talk. There's a difference between making characters talk for no purpose than it is the versus character development, and I'm not really sure. What the purpose of this was here? Um, was it really important that we the we have the Wonder Twin meets Naomi's parents? I guess so. It just, it just doesn't move the story along very well. Uh, but having said that, it's clear here that the entire, all of society is there, that, that the city is there, the citizens are there to celebrate with the Justice League in front of the Hall of Justice. And you can kind of see the absurdity of it when when Sinmar Utobica is going to attack the Hall of Justice. And... You would think that who in their right mind would want to vi- visit the Hall of Justice? Because, I mean, they have to know that it's not the first time that, you know, a group of uh, a superhero headquarters is going to be attacked. But I digress. Uh, the art's fantastic. I love the art. Um, yeah, I, I like the idea of the United Order. I, I like the idea that the United Order, remember that the... Uh, a quick background for people remember that the green lantern corps no longer they no longer protect the universe it's now the united planets they've created their own police force called the united order and it consists of uh Prince Zerup, who's a Tamaranian. Hawkslayer who's a pretty cool looking Hawkman character he's Thanagarian the Dominator QQ uh Davinia is a Daxamite and Bloodstar is a Gardanian so we got some we got some new characters here so speculator alert uh there's there is a lot to mine here uh, I just wish that uh, I just wish that I felt like uh, more, you know, that we had a little bit more, uh, a little bit more substance. It always feels the same way with Bendis that we we kind of when I start talking about it, there is stuff that happens in the issue, but it it just lacks substance. It's always we're always waiting for answers that should have been given to us five issues ago, and it's frustrating, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, once again, I like the backup better. Bring me Justice League Dirk.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, and you're totally right about Sinmar Utopica. You know, five-issue story in Superman, and we never did really get, understand his motivations other than he just, he's got the power of Superman and decided he wanted to be bad. Like, it, it never made any sense. And it, and he's got a terrible design, terrible character design, you know, yeah. which yeah, I expect more from Yvonne Reese, but I imagine his character... Design um, direction was was coming from Bendis, so yeah, it's yeah, it's not it's not good. Uh, the backup Justice League Dark from uh, from Ram V. Uh, the art in the backup is by uh, Sumit Kumar. Um, Zermonico's moved over to Infinite Frontier right now, so that's why it's uh, Sumit Kumar. Uh Ramula Fajardo Jr. does colors. Rob Leon letters. We did see last issue this this woman. We find out she's Elnara. Roshdy, Roshdu. She's the thirteenth knight of Arthur's court. We saw Batman had been following her. She's in Gotham. She's trying to figure out um, what her her mission is. Uh, she knows it has to do with Merlin, and, and you know her path is uh, on a collision course with the Justice League Dark because we know they're trying to find Merlin as well. Uh, but Batman, he's a little harsh in this issue. He's a little uh, sort of full of himself, uh, and tells her, you know, this is Gotham. Uh, I I got, cause uh, Elnaro wants to, to, to uh, Elnaro, she wants to team up. She's like, Hey, we can, we can work together. You know, I sense that you're a fellow knight and Batman's like, no, 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 I got this. This is Gotham. Um, I knew something was going on, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And now this lack of evidence makes sense. They're using magic. I got it. This is my city. Go away. Basically. <laughs> uh, and so he ends up tracking down this group that's worshiping or have some, has something to do with, with Merlin, and then kind of gets his butt kicked because of the magic, which he is not equipped to handle. And Elna- it's Elnara to the rescue. So, uh, pretty solid issue. Uh, I I don't like the Sumit Kumar art as much as Zermonico. Uh, it's just a different style, and it's not quite as clean. But the art by Kumar is is very good. Uh, just a different style, um, and the the color work is not quite as bright, which sort of suits this. Um, a little bit of a, a thicker line and, and um, it's not quite as traditional su- superhero art um, from Sumit. So uh, the, the color work by Romulo Fajardo Jr. shifts in to a little bit of a paler uh, kind of palette, which again, Romulo Fajardo Jr. is an excellent colorist, certainly knows what they're doing. So not a, not a big surprise, but yeah, I mean, this continues to be a very, Wonderful story, the characterization, the interaction between the characters, the dynamics of the story. I mean, Ranvi is just killing it. Um, It's fantastic. There's a great scene between Zatanna and Ragman, which um, kind of foreshadows their relationship and and what's going on there. It's clear there's something behind the scenes. So, yeah, it just – when you put these two stories in the same book and you get such poor – Storytelling in one story and such great storytelling in the other, it, it makes the, the first story look even worse in comparison. So, uh, what did you think,
1: Rocky? Uh, I, I liked it. Uh, we 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 are told that uh, the the forces, the the group of monks that were, I guess, evil monks that uh, Batman was sort of that rescue that he rescued uh, the thirteenth night from. Uh, We're actually, apparently they're the brothers Ambrosius, the brothers of Ambrosius, who apparently have been projecting cyanic waves around Gotham using magic. And they're obviously likely affiliated with Merlin. Of course, Batman doesn't know that. The thirteenth night, uh, of course, Elinaru Ele- Roshu. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's very com- comedic or uh, it's unintentional comedy. You know, she compliments Batman on his on his unique kind of armor, and she even asks if she could have if she could, you know, how he made it. And Batman actually thinks she's a little bit crazy, but like he alluded to, this is in Gotham City. Everybody's a little crazy, but he doesn't quite trust her, so he doesn't ta- let her tag along. But to uh, Elin. El Naro's credit, she follows Batman. And it's a good thing she does because she ends up saving his butt against uh, the same uh, uh, brothers of Ambrosius later on down the line. And at the very final panel, there is a, uh, just a callback to another classic character. And I had to Google this. Uh, she ends up, uh, they end up finding a character by the name of Randhir Singh. And he's trapped in his own body and he's got all these metal wires and whatever hooked up to him. And for those who are wondering, uh, Rander Zing is a UN delegate of India, and he's a longtime associate of Jason Blood, the Demon, who uh, who uh, back in back in the day would would be in the pages of the Demon and would help Demon deal with supernatural bad guys. Uh, in a nutshell, and so uh, this is Ram V. I mean, he's you know he's he's introducing up all these characters that are perfectly affiliated with Justice League Dark that you would associate with it. Uh, you made a good uh, observation where uh, Zatanna has a, a conversation with Roy Rory Regan, who is the ragman, and he and he very cleverly uh, lets her know that he's he is aware of uh, the, the fact that. Uh, her Satana's life is turning upside down and he emphasizes the words upside down by reference to the upside down man because every time Zatanna uses her powers, the upside down man is that much closer to taking over Zatanna and so that's a secret and that's something that is building to a head as well. So all in all, once again, we got like eight pages of a lot of action and a lot of actual plot progression. More plot progression again, as usual, in eight pages than we get in the entire Bendis JL run himself. I mean, it's. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's. Uh, it's. Uh, you know, you got to pick up. Uh, you. You got to buy Justice League for a great Justice League story, but it's called Justice League Dark.
0: Yeah, it's too bad. Uh, all right, moving on. Batman Fortnite Zero Point Number Six. This is the the, the last issue. Uh, concept and story consultant, Donald mustard writer, Christos gauge pencils by Riley Brown inks by Nelson DeCastro, Castro colors by John Kalis. Um, yeah, this is the end of the story sort of,
1: which, what did you think Rocky? Uh, yeah, I'm just, um, let me get just set up here. Here we go. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, actually, uh, Harley Quinn on the cover of Zero Point number six, she kind of has her arms up in the air saying like, almost like she's saying to herself, I don't know what to think. Uh, I feel like Harley on this. Uh, this, this, is, this is good. I, this is actually, this part six, uh, this last issue ended with uh, Batman and, uh, and Catwoman being trapped in Zero Point, uh, be, mainly due to the machinations of Deathstroke. Who we discover in this issue is actually working with Lex Luthor. It's Lex Luthor that is, in fact, sort of utilizing the Zero Point uh, to, for his own ends. And this issue is a—it's actually a, a wonderful Batman Catwoman story. You really see the love between Batman and Catwoman here as they try to figure out how to escape. Uh, but they have to find out how to escape the Zero Point through through different means than they than they did to. In order to get their their sort of compatriots out in the previous f- uh, five issues, and I like the character work here. It was very well done. Again, artistically, it was it was really good. They had to go back. Uh, they end up you, you, they end up uh, retracing their steps, and it involves them. They need a third person to help them get out, and that third person is Harley Quinn and what they discover in typical Harley fashion, Harley actually loves being in zero Point. She doesn't want to leave, <laughs> and uh, leave it to Harley to, to, of course, be the typical wild card in in every story, and she actually quite likes being the wild card here, but they, they need her in order to uh, play a role in, and, I, I, and you'll have to forgive me, I forget the specific plot point as to why they need three, but in any event, this was action packed again as every single issue was. Uh again, this is a, a fun issue, but, but this one I think went a that extra mile because I really enjoyed uh I enjoyed Harley and I enjoyed the wild card that Harley had about not wanting to leave zero point. And I really like the interaction between Catwoman and Batman, where they actually they openly question themselves as to whether or not they actually want to leave Zero Point because they're afraid that they're gonna they're gonna if they're gonna forget the fact that they love each other because they they re, they they know they love each other and but they don't remember everything about their other lives and of course we as we DC readers know <laughs> that their lives are kind of a mess right now uh, over the last few years and. And you can understand, uh, somehow deep inside, instinctually, they both know that their lives are maybe too complicated if they end up going back to the real world. And, uh, of course, sadly, that is ultimately exactly what, what they discover. And But they decide they have to go back anyway because they, they just instinctively know it's the right thing to do. And so, this, this, you know, it had some degree of sadness to it, tragedy to it. But also, but also ultimately heroism. I thought this was a really nice ending to this story because it, it, I thought it basically nailed the, the power and the, and the passion of Batman and Catwoman. And I can't speak for the, uh, for the other characters because I don't play a lot of, uh, I don't play Fortnite, I don't play those video games, but, uh, but I, thought this was, I thought this was well done. I, I got to give Christos Cage the writer here. I got to give him uh, full props and, and the art here I thought was, uh, was quite impressive. But uh, what'd you think, Chase?
0: Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in the end because in the end, we didn't get an ending. Um, in fact, we got a blurb at the end that said far from the end. Um, so it, it's clear, and, and I, I do wonder, was was it originally meant to end, but then it was wildly successful, and so DC Editorial decided, hey, give us a little bit of an ambiguous ending so that we can continue the series. It it seems like they're going to do more Batman Fortnite. So I think that's a good thing. I was actually in a comic book shop last Friday and there was this kid in there with his parents who was trying to buy the whole series, um, trying to track down all the issues. Uh, had never really read a comic before, clearly played Fortnite. Uh, hopefully he's going to read them. Hopefully, you know, it's, he's going to, take that first step on the path of becoming a comic book reader and a comic book fan. So I I think these kind of crossover events are important. Um, And so if they're going to do more, I I, I do think that's great because this has been successful and maybe it can bring in new comic book readers. Uh, But I wasn't prepared to not get a nice clean ending. At least we do find out who the villains are. So that I thought that was great. Um, But we, they're so it's almost like, even though this is the final issue, we have more questions than answers still at this point. Yeah. So in that way, you want to talk about an island. Uh, anybody remember Lost? <laughs> Every time I watched an episode of that show, I felt like I knew <laughs> less coming out of it than I did going in. There were always more questions than answers. So uh, there is that aspect of the story. So that being said, the positives, like you said, it's it's very much um, encapsulates Batman and Catwoman's relationship. And that's kind of the, the the through line that goes through all the issues, which really grounds it and makes it feel like this Batman is is our Batman, with how it ties in so much with what's been going on with Batman and Catwoman uh, in the regular DC Universe. So I think that works really well. The scope of it, it feels big. It feels action-packed. And in that way, I imagine it feels very much like Fortnite. Um, I don't play Fortnite. I have never played Fortnite, just like Rocky, so I, I can't really speak to that, but in my mind, and from what I know of Fortnite, it, it it does feel that way. And and the fact that Fortnite is a, a game you can play over and over and over, like you know, you get to the end and then it just restarts. It's that loop. And the story that Christos Gage and Donald Mustard told here very much that the idea of the loop that you can relive things and and do things differently each time, but it's always going to start over. It's sort of infinite in a way. From a marketing standpoint, that's fantastic. You can always tell batman Fortnite stories batman zero point stories um but also from us you know an an idea of hey how can i keep it fresh and even though it's batman it's catwoman it's Fortnite, and these are all concepts we're familiar with how can i keep it fresh well the story can be different every time because it constantly loops so there's a lot of good here Uh, i think the art by riley brown like uh like rocky said is excellent it's the entire series has been brightly colored the entire time, no matter who the artist has been. So I think that works very well. And just this whole idea of, of what the zero point is, why these villains want it. Um, I could have done without seeing the Batman who laughs last, but just because I, I think, you know, he's from the Joker, right? It's, it's Batman. We get too much Batman. It's Joker. We get too much Joker, blend them together. I think my feelings about Batman who laughs are, are well known at this point, but he does exist and whether, you know, I, I can't change that. So he, I do think he is actually a good choice for one of the villains here, along with Lex Luthor. And then this Dr. Sloan, who I'm not familiar with at all. I, I'm kind of assuming she comes from
1: the world of Fortnite. I, I don't even yeah, know. if I'm assuming a, that too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, but I don't even know if there's a backstory or, or what the backstory is for, for the, the Fortnite video game. So uh, um, again, there's a lot to like here. I, I think, the art is spectacular, uh, like you said, Rocky. Particularly the montage pages, uh, where we get you when know, we get the scene of Batman proposing. We get Catwoman in her old what, what is my favorite costume, uh, the, the purple and with the green cape, which I, I love. We get her diving off the boat. Uh, yeah, it's just it, it's just fantastic. Uh, so all in all, we're, it sounds like we're going to get more Batman Zero Point, and I hope it continues to sell really well, and I hope it pulls in. Uh, Pulls in more more readers, so yeah. I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah, I hear
0: you. Uh, all right, up next we have Wonder Girl number two. This is from writer Joelle Jones. We have Joel Jones and Adriana Mello as the artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Clayton Cowell does the letters. Um, I sort of felt like this issue was a mess. <laughs> um, the yeah. art is fantastic from each of the covers, which are great to the wonderful line work and color work of, uh, Jordi Belair and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Joel Jones and Jordi Belair, Joel Jones, line work, Jordi Belair color work, particularly the color work when, um, when Yara Flores submerged under the water. Um, but it just, it feels like, like, I don't know who Yara Flores is at all. It feels like, in a way, Joelle Jones doesn't know who Yara Flor is, and Yara, Yara Flor herself doesn't know. Like, it just felt so chaotic. I I, I go yeah. back to talking about Crush and saying, well, I don't know if her characterization is accurate. I've read every Yara Flor story, and I don't know, like, this doesn't feel like the way she acted previously at all. Now, granted, all those stories, other stories were in the future, and so maybe you know this is her learning her way but you know from not knowing her own strength to kicking the drink cart out the side of the airplane yeah. um the whole issue just felt like a mess to me yeah um and then we get eros who is you know basically cupid right when we're talking about these gods and you would think that Cupid would be pretty good with a bow and arrow, but somehow he manages to cut himself with the arrowhead, despite the fact that this guy's an immortal god and is, this is his weapon. Somehow he manages to cut himself right as the moment he sees Yara Flor, and even Eros himself is not immune to his own arrows, which just seems incredibly stupid, on top of him not being able to handle a bow and arrow, and then he sees Yara Flor, and now he's falling in love. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> it, it just... I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it doesn't work for me. I thought it was dumb. I thought the whole narrative was a mess and choppy. Uh, and frankly, I expect more from Joel Jones than this um, in terms of telling a story, because I know she can tell a good story that makes sense. But here, it, it falls apart. It logically doesn't make sense. The characterization is choppy. The narrative is choppy. So, it was gorgeous to look at, but... Um, I've gone back and forth on Yaraflor of not really being a fan of her. Some, some of the future state stories with her I thought were okay. Some I didn't enjoy so much. I thought the first issue of this was very intriguing. Um, but a lot of those really interesting ideas in the first issue didn't get fleshed out here. Like we know there are various different factions around the world that want Yara Flor not to be in Brazil, not to be in her homeland because it's somehow portending the end of the, the world – um, and now they're all after her, and it feels very much like a MacGuffin hunt. And the MacGuffin is Yaraflor herself, but we we're not getting enough of the why behind it, other than in the first few pages. Like I feel like the first few pages of this issue, where she's underwater, I was filled with hope. I'm like, oh, this is really, really good. And then as soon as Yaraflor comes up out of the water, the story just falls apart. Um, the narrative just, like I said, it just feels messy. Uh, and maybe with some more issues and with more pieces put into play, um, I'll look back on this and I won't be so harsh on it, but man, I, I was just really disappointed in this issue. Um, but at least I had the great art and the great color work to kind of pull me through. But um, yeah, from, from the choppiness to that scene with arrows at the end. And I, I just kept like, really this guy, this immortal God who's been using the bow and arrow for thousands and thousands of years cuts himself on the arrowhead and he's not immune to falling in love. Like Cupid is not immune to falling in love from one of his own arrows. Seriously. Yeah. I I didn't like that at all. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe you had a better experience than me, Rocky. What'd you think? Uh,
1: I I am actually going to agree with you here. And um, I'm going to be, I do hold up more hope that I, I think that, that this can improve, but where, where I think this story, where I think this fell apart is it's, it's, it felt very, very much like uh, Joelle Jones had very specific plot points. There was part point A, B, C, D that had to happen, and she created a ridiculous series of events in order to get from from A, B, C to D. Uh, just to give an example, at the beginning here, she's she's actually in Iguacu Falls uh, because she's visiting uh, that that Brazilian state of Parana in, in Brazil iguaku falls and she's pulled into the water and the iraru god is hands her the bolo which is basically her magic lasso okay and then she comes out and then for some godforsaken reason you know uh her 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 newfound like in interest there wants to he for some reason she wants to fly back to rio like and i don't un, that made no sense to me i thought that she went to brazil I thought the whole point was to go to Brazil. She was there, but she needs to fly back to Rio. So why was she in Iguacu Falls to begin with? If she only after she comes out of the water, then then her then the 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 guy that was her bus driver, her tour bus driver, the uh, Joao. His name is Joao, uh, which I think is almost a play on Joelle, the writer. But Joao, I I actually had to I had I had Google. Pronounce me how to say his name, uh, but in any event, he's he 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 joins her on the flight back to Rio from Iguacu Falls to Rio in order to go to her hotel room in Rio. And I'm thinking, why on earth wouldn't you get a hotel room in the place you were going? It, so it, it was so forced that she had to, you know, in order to get the character from Iguacu Falls to Rio. Okay, then you're flying back, and then they're on their plane, and then nonsensically the Amazons. You know, some of the Amazons, uh, some of Banner McNall's Banner McDowell tribe Amazons, suddenly appear on the plane and they openly attack Yara. Like, nonsensically, why would you do that? Why not wait till the plane lands? Like... Why would you attack her in the plane to endanger lives? I mean, I'm sure even the Queen Faruka of the uh, of uh, Art of the Banner McNall did not say, go get go get Yara or go kill Yara, and by the way, if you have to wipe out everyone on the plane, do that. I, I it just seems so ridiculous. And then Yara herself, Yara herself just kicks kicks a cart and, and literally kicks a hole in the plane, endangering basically. I mean, how many people died on that plane? I mean, I guess we'll never know. We can just assume nobody because we want to be polite to Yara Flor. And we can maybe say, well, Yara doesn't know how her powers. I'm guessing, none of this is said in the narrative, I'm guessing that the longer Yara is in Brazil... I'm guessing is that the more powerful she's going to be coming. So I think she's getting stronger and stronger while she's in Brazil. I'm guessing that because she doesn't seem to understand or appreciate her own strength. I'm reading that into this story, even though it's not entirely clear, it's strongly implied. But the, this crashes the plane and she just happens to crash the plane right beside where Eros is, who is the grandson of Hera, who also wants to, I guess, kill Yara Flor. Uh, and and of course, what are the odds of all the millions of years that he's been around that he happens to prick himself with his own arrow right at that moment when he sees Yara Flora? Everything seems so forced to me, and it just doesn't seem, it lacked a degree of verisimilitude. It, none of it really seemed to progress naturally to me. It did feel forced, and that's why it felt so choppy to me. And uh, I was, you know, uh, again, this isn't, this can get better but uh it just it does seem very forced to me very choppy and i'm i'm a little bit uh i'm a little i don't mind yara being i don't mind yara being hyper and being uh impulsive but this was yara being uh dangerous stupid and someone that maybe she should be recruited and placed on the Suicide Squad with a bomb in her head. Maybe that would calm her down and cause her to be more <laughs> yeah. rational. No, but seriously, it's like she's going to have to really calm down here. I mean, she definitely has some flaws here, and I don't mind that. Jury's still out, but I think you know Joelle Jones needs has has to reel in some of some of her uh, atrocious decision make Yara's really irresponsible behavior here. They really got to reel her in, and uh, so in any event, I um. Um yeah there there there's a number of thing more things I can comment but I will say this there, there's kinetic energy here it's it, there is a fun factor here there is a fun factor here but it's sloppy it's re, this is like sloppy fun almost too sloppy she's got to like just reel it in a bit and and streamline it because uh, and just one quick point at one point when Artemis is talking to Queen Faruka Queen Faruka tells Artemis that oh well this is a small matter are you sure you want to get involved and, and then literally in the next page, the other group of Amazons is talking about how this is this is going to be either bringing destruction to the Amazons or it's going to bring their salvation. Well, is it a big deal or isn't it? You know, you got one queen saying to, to Artemis, well, this isn't a big deal. It's a small mission. Go take out Yara. And then, but yet it is, it's a very big deal. So there even seems to be uh, contradictions in the, in the story, in the importance of the main plot line itself. Um, I hate to be so critical here, but I was really expecting a little bit more here and uh, uh, my fingers are crossed that things are going to get better from here on in, but uh, we shall see.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. The decision-making of because here's the thing, like I, I talked about some, she's been a little inconsistent. Some of the future state stories of the art floor I liked and some I didn't. I liked her in certain stories or I was indifferent. I never disliked her. In this issue, when on the plane, when she's acting the fool, I, I actively disliked her. Yeah. Like I don't want to read about somebody who's this idiotic. Like it just yeah. it wasn't good. So yeah. if you're trying to endear character uh people to these characters and get them to care about them, that's not the way to do it. Uh all right, up next is Green Lantern number four, uh written by Jeffrey Thorne. We have art in the first half of the book by Tom Rainey, where uh we're on the the planet of Oa. And then the second half, or I'm I'm sorry, when we're on the uh, we're out in space with um with John Stewart. Uh, it's by Tom Rainey. And then when we're back on OA, the art is by uh, Marco Santucci. Michael Atea does the colors, Rob Lee on letters. Um, yeah. We're seeing more shades of uh, a future state. So what did you think of this one, Rocky? <laughs> um, I-,
1: I thought this was, um, uh, yeah, d- this is definitely leading into future state. Uh, th- this was, uh, this was, um, a little bit frustrating in parts. I actually, uh, actually, the part that annoyed me the most. There was a scene where Teen Lantern kept saying a bunch of stuff in Spanish, and I didn't know what she was saying. And I actually had to take ten minutes to Google it. And, um, uh, and uh, in, in any event, uh, this this really just continues the story. We we know that uh, we know that John Stewart is in this this new sector of space uh, where the, this 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 army, this armada of Quinari Quinari, they've they're responsible for attacking all the Green Lanterns in this in this dark sector. And out of the thousand Green Lanterns that are now part of of this of this new Green Lantern Corps that are part of this dark sector. Uh three hundred of of them have been essentially killed. The bounties have been fulfilled. The Quinaris are hunting down to take the rings from these Green Lanterns which are trapped in the in the dark sector. And in this issue they go after Jon Stewart with a vengeance. And John Stewart manages to um manages uh to uh defeat them and essentially utilize the uh take over their, their ship. And, uh, other than that, uh, oh, and while he's doing that, uh, the, uh, the Far Sector Green Lantern, along with Teen Lantern, are trying to figure out what to do. And they end up, um, uh, they, they decide that they're going to go check out Sinestro because, they they want to narrow down the suspects because they ask themselves, who has the power to destroy the central power battery? And they, they narrow it down to a number of people and Teen Lantern consin- insists that it's likely Sinestro and she s- screams out in Spanish, he's a monster, you know this, he did this, he hurt all these people, nobody is doing anything about it, well, I'm going to do something. And uh, this Teen Lantern is, she's just as impulsive as Lyra Floor, except she's six years younger, I think. I. <laughs> So, uh, impulsiveness seems to be a, a trait of these new heroes of the DC universe. And um, uh, overall, I mean, again, um, we're, we're just moving closer to Future State. Uh, I thought the art was—I uh, thought the art was pretty good. Uh, I'm getting used to the art because it's not art that I normally associate it with Green Lantern stories. I had to get used to it when it was in Future State. Ah, uh, John Stewart is very good. Uh, I will say this about um, uh, the the scripting here. I like how John Stewart is is he's a very capable fighter, even without his even without his Green Lantern ring. And he, uh, John befri- befriends a stranger here, and he sets up a trap and he creates a, a Faraday cage, which is a an enclosure that blocks electromagnetic fields which is quite quite clever, and he creates a trap. And Jeff, writer Jeffrey Thorne here I thought was quite creative in how Jon Stewart did that. He's clearly showing John Stewart to be a very capable fighter even without his ring. And uh, we saw that, of course, in Future State as well. And we saw in this uh, this issue ends with Jon Stewart uh, uh, essentially creating uh, the same sort of, I think, electromagnetic field that takes out the weapons of the quinari and he becomes a hero of the people that he's helping and ultimately this will lead to the civil war that we saw in future state where ultimately we know ultimately the the 700 remaining lanterns will eventually unite to have one final battle ag- against the quinari in future state at least that's what i think but i don't know am i getting that right jace <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: it, it feels like it, um, and, and, I, and I will give Jeffrey Thorne some credit. Like during the Future State Green Lantern, I, I, I harped on the fact that John Stewart was going up against the Coons, these you know this warrior race, and he you know was outnumbered a thousand to one, and he was holding his own. At least in this issue, against the Canari, who are a similar race to the Cuns, At least Thorne takes the time to explain just how John Stewart is able to defeat them and it makes sense and it works um i i you know we still understand that jeffrey thorne's a huge john stewart fan and he's definitely putting him in the most positive light here but i didn't mind it i i, I did feel like it it definitely made sense um and it's clear that thorn is is telling a big story here you know yeah 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 no it's, he's, it's the, the scope of it is is really big Uh, is what I mean. But I do sort of feel a little bit like the whole idea of it is something that we've seen a lot recently. We saw it with Jeff Johns. We saw it with Robert Venditti. Um, This whole idea of the core becoming powerless. It just feels like we've done this so much and I I, kind of need something new. Um, But maybe it's just, you know, it's not for me, right? This is Jeffrey Thorne's first chance to, to write the Green Lantern characters and uh, you know he wants to tell the story. He wants to tell. Clearly, he's a big fan, especially of John Stewart. So I I get that. And maybe it's just a matter of I've been reading these these characters too long. Now that I'm starting to see these patterns repeat themselves. Um, so I'm more I'm more interested in in what comes after, right? Not so much. So how how are they going to recover? How are they going to prevent that future state storyline from coming to pass? I'm more interested in like. Give me the stories about the Green Lantern Corps actually existing and out there trying to work alongside the United Planets and, and that sort of thing. To me, that would be more interesting than telling another story about the Green Lantern battery being destroyed and about them not having power and how do they get through that. I just feel like I've had that story a lot recently, um, but but I don't know. I mean, overall... I thought the issue was solid. You know, the the first half is all about Jon Stewart and how he defeats these aliens with, you know, without his power ring. And like I said, I I think it worked. It all made sense with what, um, with what uh, Jeffrey Thorne gave us. And the Tom Rainey art here, I thought is some of the better art that he's done. We've uh, been a little critical of his art in the past because Hmm. I feel like his, um, his proportions on his bodies change uh, from, you know, one panel to the next wildly Uh, the second half of the story on Oa, with teen lantern. I agree with you. It's annoying when she speaks Spanish and we don't have translation. I'm not sure what, what that's about. Can we just put the little brackets around us and give it to us in English and tell us she's speaking (laughs) Spanish. Like, I don't understand the the reason for that. Like, are you trying to teach us to speak Spanish? Uh, I feel like I'm kind of long in the tooth to, to be learning another language. I never was never very good at languages in in the first place. And that's coming from somebody I'm, I'm half, uh, Hispanic myself. Um, that was always the way my grandparents would talk behind our backs, like right in front of us, so we wouldn't know what they're yeah. saying. Because well,
1: we uh, well, not only that, the funny thing is, is that that was actually I think that it was obviously intentional by writer Jeffrey Thorne here, because normally the Green Lantern rings will do will, will translate. automatically translate, but yeah. they they he, 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 it's a plot point that the translation matrix is screwed up mechanism, and and therefore that's why you know she's yelling and screaming in in Spanish, but I mean she's told yeah, to speak in English. Point. But, but, but still it uh, it was still a little bit, it was intentional. So, I mean, I, you know, so I can be forgiving, but it was still, I did find it uh, annoying. There's nothing more annoying than when, you know, uh, you know, a plot points revealed and it's in another language and, uh, and I missed it because I, I, I just assume, I always assume that something's in a different language in a comic, it's not important, but (laughs) that's, that's wrong sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then uh,
0: the predictable parts of the second half of the story. You know, l- let's go once again with, you know, the most obvious. So it's either th- it's either Sinestro or the Red Lanterns or the the Controllers or the Bright Circle. Who at least that's a new uh, that's a new villain group. So hopefully it's actually the Bright Circle and not not Sinestro. Because mm-hmm. can we can we have a you know a, a disaster befall the Green Lantern Corps and not have the Yellow Lanterns or Sinestro be behind it? Again, that would be a little more uh, refreshing, and um, I don't need to talk anymore about my feelings on Teen Lantern. Uh, you know, it's a Bendis <laughs> character, so that 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 pretty much tells you everything you need to know, in my mind. Uh, but maybe in the hands of Jeffrey Thorne, she can uh, be redeemed somewhat. So uh, again, this book it it's it's better than I expected based on the first issue, and based on you know the the future state stuff we got from jeffrey thorne uh it has been a, a solid book and i'm I'm still on board but this was not and i think issues two and three were better this was better than issue one but issues two and three were better than this one um didn't get a whole lot of of plot momentum in this one a lot of exposition uh and a chance for john stewart to shine basically so uh all right on to the last book we're going to talk about uh, and Rocky and I both were very impressed by the first issue of this series. It's The Nice House on the Lake from writer James Tynan. Alvaro Martinez Bueno handles the artwork. Jordi Blair does colors and world design does the letters. Um, and once again, I'll say thank God for Justice League Dark uh, when it relaunched the most recent version. Uh, James Tynan was the writer and Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Uh, was the uh, was the artist, and so it's clear that from them working together on that, they co-created this nice house on the lake, which is a Black Label series, uh, kind of about the end of the world. And my oh my, is it absolutely fantastic! Uh, I do feel like the first issue was much more impactful in terms of just this big reveal at the end. Um, so, just to give a, a quick background, you know this this person who we thought was just a regular guy who'd grown up with a lot of uh, different, really close friends, um, invited all those friends to come to this lake house. And some friends he had made in high school, some he had made in college, some he'd made in uh, while he was uh, working in his, in his work career. Um, and the, the people didn't know, like the, they didn't all necessarily know each other and they didn't know why they were being invited, but it was this incredible how. And then come to find out, in the course of the first issue, we find out this guy's some sort of alien And apparently, his people, as he calls them or refers to them as, uh, decide that the earth isn't, or the the people of earth aren't really worth saving or don't deserve to live. And they basically set the rest of the planet on fire. Like skin is literally melting off of people. It is Armageddon. It is the apocalypse. It is the end of the world. And only this little pocket, this house on this lake with its gorgeous views and, uh, you know, it's a very modern house with all the amenities and even their even though the rest of the world's falling apart, even their Wi-Fi still works, Twitter and all that sort of thing. Um, And he reveals himself, Hey, this is what's happening. This is why I brought you here because I love you all. And I care for you. And you're going to get to survive the end of the world basically. And so it was a real kind of Holy crap moment, big reveal in the first issue. Um, And so that was a little bit more impactful. This issue is we're starting to see the fallout. How does this affect these people? How do they deal with it? They're all sort of in shock. Um, and so we're starting to get a little bit of characterization and character dynamic. Uh, we get a few more things revealed. Some, some, a couple of the characters go on um, uh, kind of an exploration of the house, and they find uh, some conventional weapons. Uh, they find a, a spa that includes a deprivation tank. Like, there's a lot of questions still to be answered. But this issue f- feels a little bit more like, okay, we got the big setup in the first issue. And now let's slowly start to build the characterization and the story and the drama and the tension, because regardless of how equipped the house is, and clearly there's some sort of high level technology that's so advanced to the point of, of seeming to be like magic. It's, it's mentioned at one point like, well, am I going to run out of cigarettes? No, because you'll smoke what you have in your pack. And then every time you go back to your room, there'll be a fresh pack on the, your nightstand or what have you, you know, and again, it's all from these aliens and this advanced technology, but that kind of thing to us at our level of technology feels like magic. Right. But no matter how advanced this house is and how many of their need, you know, any, anything these people could want or need for their survival, if it's all provided for them, that's great. There's still the idea of every other person that, you know, all your loved ones is gone. Every place you've ever been, in your life, everywhere, your hometown, wherever you traveled, went to school, whatever, it's all gone. Society is gone. Religion is gone. Um, maybe some cabin fever will set in. And even if not, there's that level of trauma and you know, they all have a finite life. They'll have a finite lifespan. As far as we know, they haven't become immortal. This is gonna take a toll, you know? And regardless of whether this, this person, this Walter, who said that he loves them and wanted to save them, to, and only them, despite the rest of the world going up in flames, um, at, at some point, I got to think you're going to want to give up or you're going to want to lash out or it's going to drive you cr- like literally insane. This is not some kind of normal situation that I, I think our human psyche is uh, equipped to handle. I mean, <laughs> the, this is unprecedented uh, events and, and trauma. And uh, I got to imagine that, I mean, I could see these people attacking, turning on each other, at least some of them. Cause like I said, it's not like they're all friends. They don't all know each other. Um, some of them are strangers. Um, and so I expect now that we got that big impactful first issue with the setup. And now we're going to a slow burn where Tynan and Bueno are going to build up the tension and build up um, the story. And I, I don't expect this is I, this story. I don't expect a happy ending. I don't expect time to somehow be turned back and the world to come back or uh, or maybe I'm wrong, and these people are all under a mass hypnosis, and the world is still going on out there. But what I do know is it's masterful storytelling. It's extremely compelling. Uh, the character work, the art, uh, everything works together in the narrative very, very well to tell a really, really interesting story, and I can't uh, wait to see where it goes. Uh, what were your thoughts on this, Rocky?
1: Uh, I I was really fascinated by by the character of Walter, the, the this human slash this alien who it's Walter who has created this, this, this cluster of his, his friends, the New York cluster, the high school cluster and the college cluster, all ranges in the ages in, in their early thirties. And he's put together a group of all his friends over the years. And he, as you he said, he's brought him to this nice house on the lake while the rest of the earth is essentially destroyed. And what I, what I found, uh, uh, the way this issue was is structured, I thought it started off quite interesting because the 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 pianist uh, named Rick. Uh, because each one has a name, each character has a name. There's the comedian, the scientist, the writer, the accountant, artist, reporter, acupuncturist, doctor, pianist. While Rick, the pianist, is he's narrating it, and he talks about what it was like when he first met Walter, and he he describes Walter, as somebody who you get a sense that Walter was was very insecure, and uh, even in school, Walter was somewhat insecure and maybe fearful of the future, and wasn't sure what the future held, and you get a sense that walter of course knew exactly that at some point the world that that the planet earth would be destroyed and and he you get a sense that maybe walter earth was his assignment and yet while he's there he's meeting all these friends and he's he's almost having these reservations and he you know i'm just i guess i'm just speculating but James Tinian has done a really good job here of of making me want to be in Walter's head. You know, how imagine if you're an alien and you're stationed on a planet that you know is gonna die, but you you grow to love that planet and love its peoples and you get friends and and you had the capability and the technology to create literally a nice house on the lake for your friends to live for eternity or for the rest of their lives while they're doing it. One interesting little tidbit here is uh, I found it interesting that Walter actually did come up with a seven day schedule and at the end of the schedule, at the end of the schedule, the schedule is from June 14th to uh, Sunday, June twentieth, and on day seven, the last thing that it says is Walter's farewell speech. So at some point Walter is going to give a farewell a farewell speech and what's going to happen then? Are they uh, so at some point is Walter going to leave and then they're all going to stay? And it's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, even the statues, one of the statues uh, around the building that, that, that they discovered is that if they touch this strange looking statue, it, they can see their, their, their loved ones final moments. And, and if this is such a great place, why would there be places that are so horrifying? Like, (laughs) why would a statue be on this beautiful place where you touch it and it shows you your loved ones dying last horrific moments? So on the surface while this does cater to their wildest dreams as a perfect permanent holiday at the same time there are aspects of this perfect house on the lake that is that are quite horrifying and as you said they found a deprivation tank and uh there's another group uh well in fact it's um I think it's uh, Nora and Sarah end up checking out the library and uh, they they find guns and weapons and and Walter recruits Rick, uh, the uh, Rick the pianist, and Naya, the doctor. And Naya, Naya uh, and Rick are lovers. And he sort of recruits them because he, Walter is even expecting that some of the group might betray him. And so he's already creating factions. So this is almost like the... Uh, a horror version of Survivor. And it's very interesting. And, you know, like I said, very well done by Tanian so far, really wetting the appetite. I'm so looking forward to the third issue. Just, just amazing, man. I mean, horror is definitely his genre. Between this and something is killing the children, man, he's really finding his stride.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, 100%. This is uh, maybe my favorite thing he's ever done uh, to this point. So fantastic. Uh, all right. In addition to these books that we talked about, Uh, this week. There's also Batman, the adventure continues season two, number two. There is a justice league infinity, number one title from writer, J.M. DeMatteis that continues uh, stories and narratives and plot threads from the justice league unlimited cartoon. Uh, There is speaking of horror, there's the DC horror presents the conjuring, the lover number two. So there's a few other books uh, out this week from DC, but uh, that's all we're going to cover on this particular spotlight. And for me, Uh, if I could only recommend one book, one DC book this week, it would definitely be nice house on the lake. Number two, assuming you read the first one, (laughs) if not, I was, uh, I was really impressed with Batman secret files, the signal surprisingly enough. Uh, I thought that was uh, spectacular as well. So
1: yeah, I, I really enjoyed suicide squad. Number five. I, I, I love the fact that, uh, uh, Bloodsport there encountering Ultraman and Earth-3. I thought that was great and how it, I think, it expands the potential for future Suicide Squad recruitment. I thought that was really great. And uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to Justice League Infinity, number one. I'm a huge fan of Justice League animated cartoon and I was actually, I didn't. I was actually hoping we could maybe review it, but uh, that's all right. But I do want to say a quick word about it, if I can. Jace, Justice League: oh, yeah, Infinity uh, is a really great story. I loved it uh, because it 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 brings in, it hints at all the the Batman and Wonder Woman romance that was in the animated cartoon. It hints at the uh, at the love triangle between Hawkgirl, uh, John Stewart, and Vixen. Uh, Hawk, Hawk Girls Jealousy is coming back because those of you who followed the continuity of the cartoon and Justice League animated into the Just, Justice League United uh, cartoon, all of those continuities, all those storylines are alive and well in Justice League Infinity. This deals with Amazo trying to find a new sense of, uh, of, of uh, sort of enlightenment and this deal, it, it's... So much happens in this issue. It's 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 really good. It deals with a it has Granny goodness, uh, a big Barda. Uh, I you know uh, the themes uh, the themes in in Justice League Infinity are, are really well. Uh, 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 Demitheaus De does a really great job. amazo Ima- is searching for answers to his existence. Martian Ma- Martian Manhunter is searching for his identity. Granny goodness and uh, Calabac there's a there's a civil war that's occurring on 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 Apocalypse because this takes place after the final cartoon called Justice League Destroyer the final episode in you know, of the Justice League cartoon where Darkseid leaves Apocalypse so right now nobody's ruling Apocalypse I got to tell you man for fans of the Justice League animated please pick up Justice League Infinity this is really starting off a real cool storyline I think it's really good and in fact it's it's uh it's actually my my personal favorite of the week, ironically enough. Uh just because I love the cartoon so much. But anyways, I I I I want to give a shout-out to that. So
0: Yeah, the style very much uh as far as the art goes is very yeah, much I, an I own style.
1: I own all the maquettes, I own all the statues mm-hmm. down there. I, I got all the statues of the Justice League animated, uh all the limited edition statues and everything. So I'm like a huge fan. So I'm I'm definitely biased. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> fantastic uh well that's gonna do it for this episode uh anything you got coming up this week you want to shout out rocky uh
1: n- not specifically if i do it's probably going to be more of a surprise uh in fact now i probably will i, I might even do a full-scale review of justice league infinity and talk about the destroyer of the of the, some of the cartoons that led into the into it uh since we didn't cover it fully here so i'll probably do that and i'm pretty busy at work this week but uh you know we'll see i'll always come up with something What about yourself? I don't, uh, I don't
0: don't really, I I, day job is crazy right now and I've got some other projects going on. So nothing that I can shout out specifically for this week, but I will mention uh, to everybody, ordinary gods. Number one from Kyle Higgins comes out this week on Wednesday. Highly, highly recommend it. Uh, And if you want to know more about it, go listen to my interview with him last week about it. It's a fantastic issue, fantastic story. uh, And another great uh, uh, comic from Kyle Higgins. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. So, all right, all right. I think that's going to do it, everybody. Uh, as always, want to thank you for watching or listening. If you're just checking out the the audio version on the podcast, be sure you head over to YouTube, the Comic Boom, uh, Comic Space Boom exclamation point channel that Rocky uh, has, where he puts out a, a ton of great content. So be sure you're smashing that subscribe button, hit the like button on this video. Make sure you click that notification bell so you find out when he has new content coming out. Uh, conversely, if you're over on YouTube and you want more comic content, be sure you're subscribing to the comic source on whatever favorite is uh, favorite uh, podcast platform. That's the word I'm looking for, podcast. Your favorite podcast platform, uh, we're on all of them uh, or just whatever podcast app you use on your uh, iPhone or whatnot uh, so you, you're sure not to miss any of our reviews. Uh, a reminder that our Wednesday new comic book episode is always spoiler free as opposed to this DC spotlight where we dive in depth. So uh, we appreciate your support and for joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The readings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five star reviews on Apple.